Airline Pilot Guy, episode 345. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1305 and the Ambassador Hotel in Wichita, Kansas. Today's show is recorded on the 17th of October, 2018. Today's episode, an Air India Express jet takes out the ILS antennas, hits an airport perimeter wall, a Belgian Air Force mechanic accidentally opens fire on and destroys an F-16 fighter jet, a private jet captain is killed when a pressurized door opens on top of them. More news, your feedback, and this week's plane tale, the wave scrapers. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat packs in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 345 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where we cover this week's aviation news and also answer your feedback. And joining me to help in that endeavor, we have... Doctor. Doctor. A doctor. 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 A skydiver. A marathon runner. A strength training junkie. IPA connoisseur and commercial multi-engine instrument-rated pilot. Her name, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. Good to see you this afternoon. Um, glad to be finished with work for the day and here to chat with you fine gentlemen about some aviation stuff and generally have a good time. Looking forward to our show. And also joining us from across the pond in England, in the studio, a professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff, uh, and hi other co-producers and presenters. Isn't this wonderful? Another lovely show. And also enjoying us. Let's hold it down a little bit there. Man, Dana, I told you not to start the motorcycle while we're doing the show. From his stately southern mansion in Smyrna, Georgia, barbecue master, bourbon, scotch, vodka, connoisseur, motorcycle rider, party boat skipper, and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana. Hello, everybody. It's great to be back and uh, looking forward to another fantastic show. I think I need to adjust that intro though a little bit it sounds like i'm a heavy drinker which i'm not just a uh, enjoyer of particular spirits and uh, other than that uh, great to be back and seeing everybody this evening all right we'll be happy to alter it and take out whatever you want me to take out there <laughs> all right well good to see you dana we've missed you you've been uh, absent in the last uh, two three uh, shows yeah, take actually, a, no. You made a you made a, um, a, a an appearance on yeah a cameo appearance on one of those shows. So three forty three. Yeah. Yes. You were completely absent last week. Uh, three forty two uh, actually cameo. Three forty three was football, and then last week was I was out sick, so I was not able to attend the the festivities that day. We're so glad that uh, you finally um, decided to go ahead and join us. Well. <laughs> 
We're glad you're feeling better too. How about that? <laughs> yeah, that's probably what I should say. <laughs> yeah. We're glad Thank you're you. feeling better, Dana. Thank you. Welcome it's, back. It's, it's a great thing to feel better. Uh, yeah, so okay. it's been eventful. So, anyways, well, why don't you? Yeah, why don't you fill us in on what uh, what's been happening with you? Well, uh, not a whole lot last week, unfortunately. I I had a little uh, automobile accident, so uh, that's why I was a- unable to um, attend the show last week. So. Everybody's okay. I'm okay. The other party's okay. The blame is on the other party, so that's a big relief for me. And uh, other than that, I had to call in sick because I was actually on short call, and I was uh, just two hours away from from uh, two two and a half hours away when the accident occurred. So I had absolutely no choice, and then I had no vehicle. That's when Hurricane Michael uh, made its appearance in the Atlanta area. My only form of transportation would have been my motorcycle. So. I just uh, had to had to stay out sick because I had no way to get to work, unfortunately. Um, and uh, I was still recovering from the accident. I was a little sore from it. So I just felt like it wasn't uh, the best idea for me to be in an airplane responsible for everybody's lives. So I made the wise choice and, and uh, decided not to go to work. Being that said, I still haven't flown since September 1st. And uh, next week, I'm going to get the distinct pleasure of going into the simulator because I'm losing my landing currency which was supposed to have three takeoff and landings to full stop every 90 days. I don't have that. And uh, unless I get a trip, and I was hoping the last two days I was on short call, a two-hour callout versus my normal 12-hour callout uh, to the airport. Two-hour callout from the time they call me until the time I'm, you know, it's a rough two hours. It doesn't have to be exactly two hours. It's going to be a little less, a little more. But right in the two-hour range uh, from the time they call you until they expect you at the uh, at the airport duty in. So I uh, was on call starting at 3 a.m. the last two days. Figured with the uh, bit of weather we had in the Atlanta area, low ceilings and some rain and um, fog, uh, that they would have called me because I was number one to go. Well, guess what? No call either day. So uh, it's been... Uh, I was full of hope and anticipation of being able to actually go to take flight into the skies, but they never called me. So my story is pretty short and uneventful. Next Tuesday is when I head into the sim. I will be doing um, a cat one approach to minimums. I'll be doing a non-precision approach. I'll be doing a cat three auto land um, and a few uh, visual approaches um, with some crosswinds for uh, recertification. So if I'm lucky enough to get a trip tomorrow or next Monday, um, then I will not have to go into the sim. Got my FAA, FAA medical uh, all set. That was yesterday. And uh, other than that, I'm good for another six months there unless anything happens, which I hope it doesn't. Very good. Good to hear. And we're glad that you're feeling better. Yes. Much better. And very happy to see my friends at the EPG. Everybody, we're that, happy to see you. The co-host, you of, yeah, my co-host, and and you know, of course, on radio you can't see the beautiful faces, but it's always great to see the smiling faces. And can't forget about the chat rooms. Always, uh, always nice to have the folks uh, along with us in the chat room. I think Nick is impersonating a squirrel again. <laughs> yeah, I think that's so. what I was thinking about. Chip, I, he actually looked more like a chipmunk. 
this time. Yeah. Now, if, if you if you listen to the previous show, uh, you'll understand our our uh, what we're talking the about with the, uh, the squirrel that was reference. My beautiful face I was putting on there. <laughs> but you, you were telling me you when I'm a, beautiful, I look like a squirrel. <laughs> you, you look a lot like the the squirrel uh, <laughs> teeth that you were doing last. I time. was I was referencing Douglas Steph. I mean, that's let's let's be let's be fair here. Yeah, I, I, I do do I like, look like the, a chipmunk. No, no. <laughs> keep you're, digging, you're the one, Keep digging. You're, you're the one pleasant to look at. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> He's saying that you look like a squirrel, apparently. Yeah. No, whatever. Um, Squirrels are quite nice to look at. I haven't actually listened to the last show, so that's my... Well, when you do, if and when you do, you'll understand the references we're making. Can I just say that I've seen so many squirrels this past week, and all I can think of every time I see a squirrel is Nick going, (laughs) that was funny. All right. Well, Nick, speaking of, no, let's do, let's do Dr. Steph first. Uh, What, what have you been up to, young lady? Yes. Um, A whole lot of nothing, actually. And it was wonderful. Yeah, I don't have a whole lot of exciting things to report this week. I uh, had stuff that I was planning on doing over the weekend, and then I said, you know what? Heck with it. I'm exhausted. I need sleep. I slept in both days. I did get in a seven-mile run on Sunday, but that was just kind of a light jog, shake out, get back in the running game after a marathon type of thing. And yeah, I um, gosh, what did I do? I don't know. I, I've uh, been trying to get my... Uh, eating and diet on a better track instead of a lot of fast food and stuff like that. So a couple trips to the supermarket over the weekend, I experimented with some new recipes, sent a picture of some uh, granola bars that I that I made to the uh, crew and someone thought it looked like tacos litter box. So apparently I have a little bit of work to do on my uh, cooking Who skills. could have been so rude? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know who it could have been, Nick. I'll have you know they're actually delicious, despite what they might look like. Um, yeah, they smell okay, too. Yeah. Edible, at least. We'll take that under advisement. Uh-huh. I, I, I mean, I commented on the fact that it didn't look anything like the picture that Dr. Steph had sent that well, was you know, what the pictures, they were supposed to look like. The pictures in the, the cookbooks are always, I don't know, I they never seem to. They always cheat. Yeah, they the cheat. You know, the lighting's yeah, yeah. right. Like, they're not using the real... Actually, I think this cookbook does actually have the... Well, wait a minute. My food. ribs and my... Everything looks like it does in the cookbook. Yeah, it tastes even better. good at Because that paper that really. you chew in the cookbook doesn't taste nearly as good as the paper you chew that I make for you. Excellent. A little less fibrous, I imagine. Yeah. A little less wow. chemical, anyway. too. So that's what I've been up to. I know it's not terribly exciting. It has nothing to do with flying or aviation, but I just needed a weekend to regroup. As it doesn't matter if it has anything to do with aviation or not, because we we care uh-huh. about you and your life. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. Excellent. And uh, last but not least, we have our dear Captain Nick over there in the UK. How have you been, sir? Uh, pretty good, actually, up till very recently. But uh, I've just done two Miamis uh, with minimum rest in between. And they're, they're pretty tough flights. Uh, they're, they're long, longer than Atlanta. So, you know, encroaching on the 10-hour mark. Uh, uh, but we get three pilots. Um, the only problem is we don't actually need three pilots. So uh, on the 3.30, uh, we don't have any crew rest. So... 
when it comes time for one of us to take a break uh, and let the third pilot sit in our seat, there's actually nowhere to go. So the only thing really to do is just retreat to the back of the cockpit or wander around the cabin for a bit or something, um, which kind of negates the whole point of having rest. Of course, the company could set aside a seat for us to uh, sit down and uh, actually shut our eyes and get some rest there. But they say they don't need to because um, they, we can do the flight without three pilots. Three pilots is just a contractual obligation they have because the, of the sector length, which was um, designed when we only flew aircraft with rest or um, that sort of thing. So uh, we're kind of uh, between the devil and the deep blue sea. Very luckily, we had a couple of seats that were, in fact, free on the airplane. So most of the time, we managed to uh, uh, just get out of the flight deck and sit down somewhere else, um, which wasn't too bad. But it, it is a hell of a drag, particularly when you do, you've not really recovered off the first trip when you're already into the second one. So it's a bit of a pain. And, of course, being a long flight, we don't get much time to lay over. Uh, so, um, you know, uh, I guess we got about 20 hours uh, uh, in Miami uh, and you got to sleep twice and eat a couple of times during that. So not much time to do anything else. But the weather was lovely this time, as opposed to previously when Michael paid us a visit. Nice to see him, but I'm glad he won't be coming around for a while now. Um, he did some damage, didn't he? That storm. Yeah. Um, and in the layover I had at home, um, the two days I had at home, I was very pleased to see uh, our Fred, our friend Fred from uh, San Fran was uh, oh, dashing around Europe, uh, on basically on his way through London to uh, Chicago, sorry, Chicago, wow, where did that come from, to Germany, uh, it's not like Chicago at all. And uh, he has, the same. I mean, I was just in Chicago and I'm wearing my Chicago, one of my Chicago marathon shirts from like six years oh, ago. Oh, that might have been it. And we yeah, were discussing it in the chat room. So that's probably where it popped in. Subliminal uh, communication. Yeah, messages. Sorry about so that. So when he finished work on Friday, he uh, popped over. We took him out for a meal, uh, stayed the night, fed him some breakfast, threw him on the train. And uh, then he um, he flew out uh, that after, the next afternoon. So it was very, it was very pleasant to touch base with Fred. Um and uh, let me see, uh, the flight, last flight to Miami went without a hitch. I've been really rushing trying to get uh, my plane tail out of the way. So apologies to Adam. haven't touched our interview, but I'll get on to that. And uh, tonight's plane tail was only finished about two hours ago. So uh, thanks, Liz, for getting it up in time. It's hot off the press. It is. Oh, by it. the way, I've I caught a cold. A oh, no. Yeah, I'm losing my voice, but don't worry about that. Oh, no. Well, I hope well, it... Uh, Nick, just come over to my house for the penicillin. Uh, yeah, that would be nice. That would be really nice. Um, it only really happens if I if I do a lot of talking. So uh, I shall try and shut up this tonight, this show. Oh, yes. thank God. Podcast. Yes. Perfect for <laughs> <laughs> soothing your exactly. voice. But, by the time I landed uh, in a Heathrow, uh, I could hardly speak. So um, I was swilling water and trying to get the old vocal cords going. I haven't really felt bad, but just this, you know, scratchy throat. Not nice. Well, no more of that. I, I had that for about two weeks back in August and beginning of September. It's terrible. Yeah, yeah let's stay healthy, yeah. everybody. Come yeah. on. Let's do our best. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Last week we recorded on uh, I think Thursday, and the next day I went to um, 
down to Daytona Beach. I mentioned that I was going to do that. I was going to join uh, Peter Biondi uh, as his guest. To uh, He's an alumni or alumnus of Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, and they had their homecoming weekend. And so I flew down on Friday and met up with Peter, and he showed me, he gave me the grand tour, and I got to meet a lot of the faculty and staff of the uh, university, and I think we pretty much saw every square foot of uh, ERAU, except the dorms. But I talk about that on this little piece of audio feedback that I'm going to play right now because I'm pushing the button right here. I'm here with Peter Biondi uh, at the Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. Actually, we're here in front of the Daytona Beach International Airport, which is where uh, Embry-Riddle is located, and I am just wrapping up a very quick trip down. Uh, spent a good part of the day yesterday at the Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University as a guest of Peter, who is a an alumnus of Embry-Riddle, and uh, he invited me to come down for their homecoming weekend. And let me tell you what, folks, I knew Embry-Riddle was a, a flying school, but I didn't realize it was so much more than that. And uh, Peter took me around yesterday to, I think, every building he could possibly... We didn't see any of the dorms. And, and don't worry, I don't really want to go see the dorms. But anyway, he wore me out, literally, yesterday, walking around and showing me the the, uh, the university. And it's such a great place. Uh, everybody that I saw there, all the students and faculty, everybody was very positive and very happy and very friendly and um, very, very focused on aviation. It's just, it, it, it reeks of aviation, which is a good thing. I know reek is not a good word to use, but it's just, passion. it's uh, passion. Yeah, the passion for aviation is just so evident there. And, uh, well, enough from me. Let's uh, let you talk to Peter a little bit. No, I want to say thank you for coming. You see, I'm so proud of the school. I had a great time when I was here, and I want to share that with other people. So it's it's hard to find people that really enjoy aviation like you. So I'm glad you you enjoyed everything you saw, and and people were really nice, uh, showing us everything. And then I really miss uh, the the university environment because, uh, and it's sad. Uh, well, I was telling you that some people lose that passion through the years and. So it's good if you can keep your, your passion for aviation. So that's something good about Embry-Riddle University. I can come here every year and keep the, the passion inside your heart. And something I like the most about here is that it's not only about flying, uh, about pilots, but they have engineers, they have all kinds of meteorology professionals air traffic they gave us a tour on their facilities it's just amazing they're all really nice and that's what i like about the school is a place where you can keep your passion uh, in your heart and not just studying but um, so the level professionals are really good and part of it is because it's people with passion that comes here and that's one of the, the most important things, that never lose your passion for aviation. So. It's an incredible facility as well. In fact, they uh, the grand opening for the new student center, the spaceship, I think they, yeah, they kind call of spaceship. call it, uh, was uh, yesterday. A big ceremony and everything. What a beautiful facility. It's just huge, and it's uh, state-of-the-art, and uh, everything about it was just uh, amazing. And again... All the students that I saw there yesterday, they were everybody was happy. I didn't see anybody, and everybody was studying, and well, not everybody, but a lot of people studying and very serious about what they're doing here. 
Yeah, that that's uh, it's interesting. There was like a Friday evening, and the 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 library was full of people studying. <laughs> so you don't see that in a lot of universities. The, here, people are studying, and I remember my first year here uh, was three miles from the beach. I went there once in mm. one year because most of my Saturdays and Sundays I was actually in school studying. And uh, so it's pretty. It's a really school that you come to study, and people take serious what they do. And that's what I enjoy enjoy the most that to see this kind of dedication of professionals. Uh, you don't find many people you can actually share about aviation, so that's what I I enjoy about coming here. Well, you know, I already I already I already knew that Embry Riddle had quite a reputation for being one of the finest aeronautical universities and flying schools out there. But now I have a renewed um, uh, appreciation of the school. And so thank you so much, Peter, for inviting me down to be your guest at Homecoming. It was a blast. I really enjoyed it. Now I have to head back to Atlanta and back to reality. And here we are back to reality. I had a great time. Thanks again, Peter, if you're listening for hosting me and showing me around the campus. And as you mentioned, a school of meteorology. Uh, We have uh, um, a school for mechanics and mechanical engineering and aeronautical engineering, and uh, so much more. Uh, Air traffic control, they're one of the schools that you can go to and get your uh, degree in uh, air traffic control. Air traffic control, don't they call that the kindergarten? (laughs) Yeah. Careful now. I think, so. I think we've got some uh, air traffic controllers <laughs> that, was Nick, that by do the way. listen to this program. And, All those people uh, out like there. I'd like to say that, that are... does not reflect the opinion of <laughs> no, the rest no. of the group. There you go, Dr. Steph. You go ahead and be HR because that doesn't reflect the opinion. You're right. <laughs> wow. Anyway, it was a uh, it was a grand time there and uh and and he did actually wear me out. My <laughs> I wasn't used to standing up and walking uh, for that period of time because you know i spend most of my life sitting which is not a good thing i know but uh anyway yeah. um yeah anyway. i'm was that personal trainer again huh yeah i, I was gotta... gonna ask aren't you the bloke they have those little electric carts for in the airport to drive you <laughs> from airplane to airplane yes yeah not for so. me though nick yeah, that, yeah you sure right. I... <laughs> <laughs> okay well that's, it's a, it's uh, a real confidence boost when your pilots show up on the carts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> Have I ever mentioned what I'm going to do on my retirement flight? Be an electric what? cart driver. No, I'm going to show dark up. Dark glasses. And dark glasses and a walking stick on my retirement flight. I know nobody's done that. Uh, I, yeah. I mean, no offense to anybody, but of course, seeing a pilot walk up like that, I think would be quite humorous, but I would not do that until my retirement flight. I think your uh, actual HR might have something to say about it otherwise. Yes. You don't want to lose your uh, retirement uh, uh, flight privileges, discounted fare privileges. So be careful. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Uh, Let's see. Also, uh, so that was uh, Friday and Saturday, um, home on Sunday, and then back out again on Monday for a four-day, and right now we're on day three of our four-day trip. Yesterday, we were in um, at Dulles in Fairfax, Virginia, and met up with uh, Robert Fairbairn, also known as Richard and Dick, and uh, he picked me up from the hotel. We went over to um, a relatively new brewery in 
the area called Ocelot Brewing, and uh, we did the the big sample um, tray, not a tray, but like a, a big, like a flight, yes, um, of six uh, individual uh, samplings, and uh, and then we continued to expand upon that after we decided which ones we wanted to have some more of, and uh, some some street tacos from a food truck vendor outside of the a brewery there and had a great time so uh thanks richard for uh, taking me uh robert i'm sorry now i'm screwing up again robert uh thanks for uh taking me over there i uh, had a great time and look forward to uh, doing it again sometime no audio so don't worry no more audio uh meetup stuff on this show and next week i will be on another four-day, Monday through Thursday, and let me take a quick look here. Get this window up. I'll be in. I'm off, I'm off Monday, Jeff. I wish we could just swap a day, and I could take that day and just get current. Yeah. Well, why not? I mean, if you can find somebody that will let you do that, I'd be happy to stay home and uh, get paid for four days and only flying three. Um, <laughs> I'd even do it for but- free just so I get some bounces. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. I'll end up in Greenville, Spartanburg on the first day. The second day, I'll be up in Buffalo. Get to see the uh, APG librarian, uh, Tiffany. And uh, so we should probably at this point say if anybody is up there in the Buffalo area and you want to meet Tiffany and I for a late lunch, uh, probably set it up for around 2 o'clock-ish, one thirty, two o'clock, something like that. Uh, get in touch and uh, we'll probably put something on Slack regarding that. And we can go. Well, last time I met up with Tiffany, we went over to um, Dinosaur Barbecue. Mm-hmm. And then uh, a year or two before that, I met up with her in, in a, another place. And I think she mentioned that that might be the place that uh, we go for again. Um, that's a few blocks south, I think, of where we stay. Is a uh, Tiffany with us in the uh, chat room right now? No, I don't think she is. Anyway, whatever we decide or whatever she decides, we'll uh, go ahead and publish. And well, you said the if magical you're, word for me, that's all it took. Dinosaur. What, dinosaur? Oh. Yeah. Can't get enough of that. And no. then uh, on Wednesday, we'll be in, uh, I'll be in Indianapolis and then uh, home on Thursday. So that's my week ahead. And that's all I have to say about that. So. With that, anything else to uh, do before we do the coffee fund? Nope. I go nope. check on the chicken. I'll see you in a minute. Go check on your chicken. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Okay, the coffee fund. That's Jeff Smith singing Java Jive. And the reason why he's singing it is because we have something here called the coffee fund. And you can, you listeners, can join us in the coffee fund cadre if you'd like to support us financially. And a couple different ways to do that. Last week, we had a new contributor via the classic fund uh, via paypal his name daniel alpino welcome daniel to the coffee fund cadre 
And the other way to do it is you can become a patron of the show uh, via Patreon. And we have a new producer, Christian Carlson. So thank you, Christian, for uh, joining up as a patron of the show. Again, if you want to learn how you can become supportive of our show in a financial way, head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. And there you'll uh, be given all the information. One of the perks, by the way, of that, although we haven't done one in a while, we need to do that, and uh, it is something we call the APG Crew Log, and uh, kind of a little bit of back, behind-the-scenes kind of information, extra stuff that you might be interested in. So again, thank you, everybody, for being uh, Coffee Fund contributors. And now, the rest of the story. Stand by for news. Uh, you know what I forgot to do? I forgot to read oh, this piece of feedback. I know it's so uh. bright in here. Uh, it's a piece of paper with some writing on it. Here we go. Maybe if I hold it at this angle, uh, this is snail mail feedback. We Ooh. have, uh, if Ooh. you want to, Oh, by the way, somebody, I believe I, Liz, maybe you can help me was asking that if, uh, if I had gotten their package in the APG PO box and I have to tell you that uh, I'm sorry because I don't check it often enough, apparently. And when I finally did check it uh, just a few days ago, I found a little slip of paper in there that said I had a parcel. And then um, I had until September 28th to uh, to get it. <laughs> well, hopefully it got returned to the sender so that they can yeah. send it and back to you. <laughs> either send it back to you. Oh, was it Texas or- Charlie? Oh, Texas Charlie, I'm so sorry. Um, so you probably by now have it back in your hands if you'd like to. <laughs> I'll tell you what, contact me directly, Jeff at AirlinePilotGuy.com. I'll give you my home address, and that way we'll be sure that it gets to me, okay? All right. Uh, but anyway, we do have a, um, a P.O. box, and uh, we have uh, occasionally we get um, people that send letters and cards and that kind of thing. And this is from... Well, let me read it. Um, I think Ron. Hang on. Let me get to the second page here. No, Rick. Rick Mueller. Okay. Hello, APG. I'm Rick from North Bend, Washington. It says here, right here at the top. I should have read that. Uh, I'm not a pilot, but I am an av geek and a patron at Patreon and enjoy your show very much. I've been listening to your episodes since the early 200s and have just now started going back to the first episodes to try to catch up. You now this is my favorite paragraph. You all can be very funny. No, he didn't say you all are funny. You all can be very funny. But we choose Cap- not to. Captain Nick has a great sense of humor with his anti-Boeing lines. And you, Jeff, have a face for radio. Oh. <laughs> so he's saying that good. you look funny. I like that. That's very deep <laughs> use of words. That's very funny, Rick. Yes, that is. I'm not going to read his stupid <laughs> feedback anymore. Oh, wait. Did he say a faith for radio or a face for radio? Face. Face. Oh, I thought he said faith, uh, no. which I thought would have been a really clever, sort of almost like a double entendre, but not quite. 
Speaking of faith, that Greg Faith guy, can you guys still hear me? Yeah. <laughs> Is my yeah. signal still? Um, he uh, he didn't make it to uh, Embry-Riddle for his talk. He was down in South America or something doing some kind of a being an aviation expert or something. Um, and it turns out that I wouldn't have caught his talk anyway, because when I was leaving my house, I realized a couple of miles down the road that I left my airline ID at home, which I needed to get down there. So I had to go back Uh-oh. and then I'm running late now and I get to the train and I get on the train and I'm thinking, you know, I, I'm, I'll probably just barely make it. And then the train would get to a station and then the doors would close and then the doors would open and the doors would close and the doors would open and go, Oh no. And then we'd start going and then the same thing would happen a couple more times at different stations. And I'm thinking, this is not good. And then I heard the, uh, announcement that they were removing the train from service at Garnett station. And I'm thinking, well, there it goes. There's no way I could possibly make the flight that I was intending to make. And so I didn't get there as early as I should have, but turns out I didn't miss Greg Faith's talk at all because he wasn't there. So, oh, well. you mean they didn't ask you to stand up in his stead? And no. Can you believe that? You show or something? They're lost. Is that crazy? Yeah. Or what? Uh-huh. But, but Peter kept <laughs> introducing me to people like I was some kind of a celebrity and I'm going, uh, no, you know, you don't need to, I don't need to be introduced to the uh, board of trustees chairman. I don't need to be yes, introduced do. to the yeah. president of the university. Come on. I'm just, I'm just some dude that flies airplanes and, you know, has a microphone and does a podcast anyway. Um, so. Let me uh, continue with this, just this really funny stuff here. So we left off with uh, Captain Jeff. You have a face for radio. Uh, That's certainly funny. He even thinks that that's funny. That's what he put in. So I'm including a short. So I'm including a short three minute clip of old comedy from 1959 on a commercial pilot skit from a comedian named Shelley Berman. Nick and Jeff may be old enough to know who he was. I've heard of him. Um, I cut this clip from about 12 minutes of laughs about airlines and stewardesses. I thought chances are you probably haven't heard it before, and certainly many other listeners haven't, so enjoy. It's dated, but it's still funny. I also included the 12-minute version for you. Not sure about the copyrights on it. Both Apple and Amazon still sell his albums. Yeah, so they're probably copyrighted and probably something I can't really legally play. Uh, And I do still have the little mini SD card that uh, he sent in this it's funny at the top of it it says old school upload with attachments right here i'm holding (laughs) my hand so the attachment was a little card that he sent in another little envelope anyway i promise i will listen to it maybe we'll play a clip uh, or so or a little bit of that clip uh, on the next show anyway he has a question for us so this is good feedback you are rated or qualified for certain aircraft what is your license to fly them Uh, Which is your license to fly them? I I wish I could read. Let me try that again. You are rated or qualified for certain aircraft, which is your license to fly them. But say you're on an aircraft that you've never been on before. Could you fly it? Let's say you're a passenger and the stewardesses, I didn't use that word, he did, uh, drag the pilot and co-pilot down the aisle and then ask if there's anyone on board that can fly a plane. Nick, it's a Boeing for you. Jeff and Dana, an Airbus. Or let's just say it's a Russian plane. So, Steph, you're on a Russian plane. Um, You're uh, all experienced with different multi-engine aircraft. Can you take over confidently as a single pilot? 
I'm sure the first thing you would do uh, would be to make sure that the autopilot stays engaged. Could Dr. Steph do so? Take over, I mean, not make sure that the autopilot stays engaged. I guess what I'm asking is, can you instantly become a test pilot? Thanks for your answers. Thanks to you all for all that you do. Keep it up. Thank you. And he has some uh, personal information about some of his uh, memories from uh, his flying with his dad, uh, who flew for Northwest Orient for 40 years and some of the traveling that they did and some uh, pictures of uh, letters of authorization and some, you know, tickets and passes and that kind of thing. So thank you, Rick. A lot of good stuff in here. I do appreciate that. So what do you think about um, Rick's question about um, and, and I really thought about that. I'm, I'm thinking if I'm on an Airbus, um, I I'm not sure. I think it might be kind of tough to operate an airplane that I've never used the automation on. And I might be tempted to just turn the auto automation off and hand fly it. But I know that that could be a problem with an Airbus, right, Nick? No, it'd be very easy for you, Jeff, because uh, and you're right. I think the automation is too easy to confuse because it, it does vary type to type and it it has little tricks and foibles that uh, if you don't know about, it, you can sometimes get yourself in a difficult situation. Much uh, safer to uh, take out the autopilot, take out the auto thrust, and just treat it like an airplane. It doesn't matter what airplane it is. You'll have a basic idea of how to fly it and keep it in the air if you need to. Uh, and on the Airbus, of course, if you do try to go too fast or too slow, um, or do anything silly, trying to roll it upside down. You know that the automation is going to gently intercede as you reach the envelope limits and prevent you from doing anything completely stupid. So you should be flying it with complete uh, confidence and uh, you get the hang of it pretty damn quick. Uh, it shouldn't be too hard to work out where the wheels are and how to put the flaps down. And they all land around the same speed. So, uh, you know, I guess if you aim for about a... 150, 160 knots over the piano keys, you're likely to go far wrong. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think uh, any of us could probably handle most airplanes, so long as they haven't hidden the flap lever or hidden something uh, or made something just too hard to locate. I think we'd probably make a reasonable fist of it. Oh, and so long as we didn't have to do an instrument landing of some kind. So uh, that requires more automation than we might be familiar with on that particular type. How would you turn off the auto throttles on the Airbus, just in case this I need to do this? Well, click, 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 you, if, if, yeah, there's a little red uh, disconnect button on the side, but quite honestly, if you just grab them and move them, then the auto thrust is going to go, whoa, I don't like that, I'm just going to disconnect. The same way if you okay. grab the stick and just start moving it, the autopilot will click out. It'll click out with a warning as opposed to the normal disconnect, which is more subtle, but uh, it'll always click out. Okay. Yeah, Excellent. I think, you know, to answer his question, anyone could become a test pilot in those situations. Um, but fortunately, it's it's one that would be exceptionally rare and unlikely to happen, you know, for the sheer fact that there are two pilots in every cockpit of Yeah, I want to know why the cabin aircraft. crew have dragged the pilots out of their seats and pulled them down the cabin. What are they? They I had the fish. Them or something? They had the or fish, for an Nick. extra cup of tea? They had the fish for dinner. <laughs> 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 and um, I, think, I think it was a reference to uh, Airplane the movie, yes. maybe. Ah, yeah. okay, fair enough. And yeah. uh, so, fortunately, any any one of us or anyone in general is very unlikely to find themselves in that situation. But you know, if you're going to take a hypothetical like that and and kind of take it to that extreme, yeah, anyone can can become a test pilot in that situation. I think anyone 
placed in that, you know, situation is going to perhaps surprise themselves with their ability to think rationally through the situation and figure out the best course of action. Um, like Nick said, you know, what I would, if it were me, since I'm not as familiar with large aircraft, certainly have not flown large uh, passenger jets, things like that, I would, if the, if the um, automation was already engaged, I would leave that on for the moment, make sure that I was able to get in touch with someone, hopefully on the ground, who could give me some guidance as to what I'm looking at, where important switches, levers, things like that are, so that I know what's going on, point me in the direction of a airport with a large runway and with favorable weather conditions, and then go from there with what Nick said, basically. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, when it comes to flying an aircraft, an airplane is an airplane. It's an airplane. So even though they all have different flying characteristics, they all have the same fundamental uh, abilities. And that is, you know, you keep on going forward. You're going to produce lift over the, the wings. You have flaps. You have landing gear. You have engines. I mean, it's lift, thrust, weight, and uh, drag. I mean, it's the same same type of scenario. So, you know, it's just the difference in the automation, as Nick said. You know, in 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 the co- in the flight deck, I think you know, on the Airbus, I would feel like if I was private pilot, thinking back to those days, would I be able to go into into a uh, into a commercial airline and fly the airplane? Well, I would love to have that opportunity. I mean, if if, it, if worse came to worse, and I always said when. Way back when I was really young, when Easton went on strike, I said, well, I'll go fly the shuttle between Boston and New York. That can't be too bad. So, you know, I was always dreaming. But uh, anyways, I, I think it's it's everybody's hit it right on the head, and that is, you know, an airplane's an airplane. They all fly very similar. It's not a helicopter compared to an airplane or or a glider compared to a powered airplane. So it, it, it's uh, same principles, and, and I think Doc Steph is absolutely 100% correct. So I think it might be counterintuitive to a lot of people listening uh, who are not professional pilots that I think all of us would probably turn the automation off and hand fly it because we that's you know we go back to the fundamentals we all know how to fly airplanes yeah I agree with that eventually at least like I said in my case I'd probably want to take that opportunity for the some uh, familiarization but after that you know time provided right okay Excellent. Well, thank you, Rick, for your old school feedback with uh, attachments. Maybe Jeff will be kind enough to send the crew the attachments too. So even if we can't yeah. play it on air, we can. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll I'll turn it into something uh, that I can send to you all. Okay. Excellent. Right. All right. So now where were we? We're going to talk about news. So let me find my news page and news folder and we'll dive right into it. And the first item that we have, Air India plane slams into wall at 250 kilometers per hour. And I'm thinking, is that fast? I don't know. Uh, But continued to fly. And I I did do the uh, conversion. I think it's about 130 knots or something like that. Um, Anyway, interesting incident over in Trichy, I think they is the nickname for the airport that they uh, departed from in a 737. It was an Air India Express flight, and they ended up first hitting with the belly of the aircraft the uh, ILS antenna assembly at the end of the runway. And then shortly after that, the main gear tires hit a brick and stone wall. Uh, on the perimeter of the airport and the control tower advised the crew that this had occurred 
And then uh, later they uh, confirmed it by finding the antenna assembly and mesh wire mesh um, torn up and the wall uh, badly damaged. And they said they also found pieces of their airplane. <laughs> so um, finally, the uh, after heading out over the ocean, they were heading to Dubai. Uh, something like three or four hours later, uh, I think finally by the time they landed at Mumbai, uh, it was about four hours after the flight had departed and had this little incident. Uh, they, they made it safely to Mumbai. And uh, I'm trying not to read directly from these news articles because I learned between last show and this show that uh, as a podcaster, I'm not really supposed to do that. So going to have to just kind of paraphrase everything. But there was one of these articles here that uh, had some interesting information. I believe this was from, well, I don't know where this is from. Um, Air India Express's aircraft scheduled to fly between Trichy and Dubai, struck the instrument landing system's ILS localizer antenna, and grazed the airport's perimeter wall before flying off. Graze, that would be a, a very... It's a mild uh, word for it. Mild way to say mm-hmm. it. Uh, let's see. Experts uh, recalled, and uh, never mind. That's we don't want to read that paragraph. Um, on Friday's incident, air safety expert Captain Mohan Ranganathan Ranganathan told uh, one of these news sources that the quote the senior pilot's decision to continue his flight onwards is dubious. The decision led to the loss of two hours of crucial onboard voice recording data. And this system uh, only keeps data for about two hours before it starts recording over it. So, you know, that that was a good point made that they didn't have the conversation amongst the pilots regarding this incident. And they went over sea or over the uh, ocean uh, with a a potentially badly damaged airplane. Uh, But the pilots basically, when they were advised that this had occurred, said, well, we don't have any warning lights or anything telling us that anything's wrong and we're pressurizing normally, so we're going to keep going, uh, which is, uh, I agree with Captain, uh, whatever his name is. Uh, that, Brent um, what How do you say that? I don't know. I just oh, took my best. Okay. I think you probably it. do a better job Brent than Gunnathan? I can. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I agree with him. That was kind of a dubious, um, uh, I think, poor judgment for, you know, knowing that you hit something and then continued to press on instead of landing as soon as conditions permit and uh, having the airplane examined. Um, I don't know. What do you all think? No, I I agree with you a hundred percent. I mean, it's not just, you know, a questionable decision. It's a safety matter because yeah, everything appears to be working fine, but you're going to take the plane for how long of a flight, not really knowing what kind of structural damage you might've caused, whether there's something that could become a much bigger problem before you're able to land safely. I think the prudent thing to do is, you know, uh, it, uh, basically not fess up, but say, hey, something happened. We need to get it checked out. We need to land as soon as practical. Practical. And how do you smack the uh, ILS antenna assembly and hit a wall with the main gear and not feel that? No I, idea. No. <laughs> That's just not believable to me. I'm sorry. Well, I think I saw different reports where uh, there was something from the crew saying that, you know, they didn't notice anything and everything seemed to be working fine. They were just advised by someone else. And then I think there were other reports saying no passengers definitely noticed that something had happened. 
Oh yeah. There's one <laughs> I'll quote from this, um, this article here, if I can find it, um, talk about the flight tenant. No, uh, it had something to do with, um, scary rocking. Oh yeah. The, the passengers the noticed that there was scary rocking, uh, after takeoff and the cabin crew told them, no, that was perfectly that's, normal. That's normal. That's what <laughs> oh, here it is. Normal. Here yeah, it is. That's what it was. I'll quote from this article. This is a different article. Uh, Ganesh Babu, the uh, captain had reportedly told officials that there was no problem in the plane and all the cockpit cockpit equipment indicated to him that the plane was in good shape. Uh, the official said that the pilot was supposed to take off at a particular point on the 8,169 foot runway, but he could have crossed that point before taking off leading to the tire brushing the wall. Not sure what they mean by that. Uh, when the passengers asked about the scary rocking experienced by them, they were reportedly told by the crew that that was common. <laughs> so, you know, an 8,169 foot, I'm assuming it doesn't actually give the uh, measurement, whether it's feet, but that'd be way too long for meters. So I'm assuming feet runway should be plenty long enough for a 737 to take off from. Yeah, wasn't uh, it, it's not, it hit a thousand feet beyond the end of the runway? Well, I mean, if you think about where a typical yeah, ILS assembly meters. is and yeah. then a perimeter wall beyond that. And they don't appear to be, I mean, there's a couple pictures and sometimes it's hard to get a sense of scale, um, but they're not very tall structures. Let's just say that. So this aircraft was not far off the ground, if at all, when it. Oh, no, he was these... trundling through the grass, I suspect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I also like that uh, one of these articles just posted a picture of a 747. Yeah, yeah a 747. that's part of that as well. A typical, let's just, somebody give me a picture of an Air, Air India, India airplane. Not even an Air India Express, which I think is probably part of Air India, sure. but a big giant 747. Mm. Similar. Yeah. That's a Boeing. You know, at least they got that right. Yeah. Close. So yeah, um, I must admit, I'm just going to make one comment. Um, I don't think that we as uh, captains should be concerned about landing an aircraft because we're worried the cockpit voice recorder tape is going to run out but other than that i uh, i happen to agree with everything that that assessment uh, said or quoted I, um yeah yeah i don't know that they were worried so much about it running out i think they were thinking that may have been part of their thought process as to why they did not land oh really well it's easy just to pull the circuit breaker and, of, and erase it quite yeah. honestly if you really want to sure. do but, that but, but yeah but then that that implies that uh, intent that you intended to not have the voice recorder available for yeah. an investigation. No, I, I suspect it's more the frustration of the uh, of the accident uh, an analyzer that he didn't have that piece of data available. So he was expressing frustration at that. So me as a captain, I'm, it's not even going to enter my thought process as to whether there's going to be that there or not and available. But uh, yeah, other than that, if you smack something, I mean, for heaven's sake, we've got a tail scrape uh, warning indicator on our aircraft and it can be just the fact that you have touched that little um, device at the back of the aircraft on the ground and done no other damage but i if that light comes on I, there's no way in a million years i would consider heading off on a route uh now and climbing up to <laughs> altitude uh i would prepare my logbook for inspection by the uh, accident investigation board whilst I, um, you know, land the airplane back on. So uh, I just uh, plowing through the overshoot and taking out the aerials and smacking a brick wall 
No, I agree with you guys. There's no way these chaps didn't realise what they'd done, but they were just hoping to get that they had got away with it. Uh, they they must have known they exceeded their normal takeoff length. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, wait. You you said you have a tail strike warning light. Yeah. Oh, that's a novel idea. Okay. Something we don't have in our, in our airplane for sure. Um, okay. We would it would just be by feel or or by actually visual inspection. You know, I somebody wrote in. I, I think to us, we you know, regarding why or how the airplane could have had such a takeoff, uh, such a long takeoff roll. Well, let's hold hold that thought, okay? Because that that'll be in our feedback section. Okay, but I won't say anything more than that on that. Okay. But my, my my thought here is where the damage occurred is pretty scary to me. It happened on right where the main gear is. So this means he's not in a very nose-high pitch attitude, right? So he's not trying to climb away from anything at this point. And, you know, you, know, you mentioned it, it, Nick, and you're talking about the, you know, tail skid indicator. You know, the only damage is right underneath as far as we can, as far as I see, is right underneath where the main landing gear is. Right between, you know, where, where they would retract. So, yeah, he would not have any indication of any damage. And I agree with everybody. You know, me as a new captain, if somebody called me and said, hey, you know, we have evidence of damage at the airport and it's from your airplane, um, I'm going to the nearest suitable airport. I'm not going to fly for another three hours flying back to Bomb, you know, where they go, Bombay. Is, was, is that where they went? Yeah. yeah, Mumbai, yeah. Mumbai, Mumbai, yeah. Mumbai, Bombay. Um, I'm not doing that. I'm going to the nearest suitable airport, putting the aircraft down on the ground because I don't know exactly what the extent of the damage is. So um, they uh, they did have some pictures in there, and uh, there was a big hole, and I believe it was the left horizontal stabilizer near the root. Of, yeah, uh, that was that just some the, debris um, flying up. So yeah, kind of yeah but it's still damage. <laughs> yeah, there's, da- there's definitely damage there. But yeah. you know what, what's 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 really telling to me is that the damage is underneath the belly of the airplane midsection. I mean, the engines just cleared that. Luckily, right? Yeah, I, mean, I don't know how the engines. Yeah, I don't know how. I don't know the how they didn't get hit because where the, the the damage is is really telling me that that the the nose is in a fairly low position, not in a high takeoff position. So I don't know what's going on there. It's kind of fishy. Yeah. Well, obviously, they're going to have the flight data recorder. That was not overwritten. And uh, they'll be able to do some analysis regarding that. So hopefully, we'll find out exactly what occurred here. And I think uh, we all can. Can I just ask a question? Do you guys have any great exception to having a uh, copy voice recorder that runs for 24 hours? I don't know why that would be. I think I mean thirty. I think a thirty-minute loop is too short, to be honest. Well, I wouldn't. Yeah. I wouldn't be opposed. Well, I think to modern ones, modern recorders now are uh, two hours. Yeah, but my feeling is we've gone way past the days of worrying about our management pulling the audio tapes from an aircraft and listening to private discussions of the pilot uh, about, uh, say, a pay negotiation or something, which was always the concern. Uh, that uh, our casual conversations could be uh, pulled by the company. Uh, we have data protection now that is uh, so well enforced that that's not going to happen anymore. Um, and I personally think that it's, it is vital, really, that added to all the other data we gather on the aircraft, we also gather data on what's happening on the flight deck, so that just so this kind of accident can be properly investigated. 
So uh, would you go a step further and say we should have um, video as well? Yes, you should have video, you should have audio, you should have uh, everything. If we're conducting our jobs uh, properly, then we have nothing to be concerned about. I don't don't mind the audio, and and I support a longer loop because there are newer situations that are coming coming about, especially... uh, I'm not even going to talk about it on the air, but that I'm, I'm more, more concerned about. But I wouldn't mind having a much longer audio loop, six, maybe eight, 12, 24 hours. That's fine. I have nothing to hide. I do my job, you know, as advertised, as the company wants me to do my job. So, I mean, even with the video recorder, I, I wouldn't have necessarily an issue with that. Other than that, uh, I think that kind of steps over the line, although... My truck accident, I wish I had a video recorder, although it turned out okay. But uh, it, anyways, uh, being that said, I would I personally be opposed to video recorders. Well, I see the, I can see both sides of the argument for that. But I think it's inevitable that eventually we'll probably have to live with that. Yeah. But, and uh, it, we're currently protected uh, from random uh, accusations being made concerning the data that comes off uh, all the normal flight parameters that are recorded because uh, any flight that where someone's done something uh, uh, a little bit out of the ordinary um, it is de-identified before the company flight safety people are uh, given that by a guardian in our airline for example and most airlines have a very similar sort of system in other words you are not personally going to be identified Uh, whatever data whether it be voice or video, you're eventually going to go to the point where, well, okay, we just need to be able to see what's happening on the flight deck to try and work out what's going on because, you know, these incidents need to be properly um, picked up. We we laugh now when we see what little data there was available to early aircraft accident investigators uh, and say, well, <laughs> you know, oh, if only they'd had a proper um, flight recorder. Uh, now we've got those, and we've got lots of other things we could use to really accurately work out what went wrong. I just find it ridiculous we don't employ them. Well, you know, in, in Folkware is what you're talking about. Um, Folkware is far more advanced than the newer equipment, very much like what you're flying. And I actually, my buddy that flies for uh, Spirit, he got a phone call directly from Flight Safety because they had had him doing 180 knots at 1,000 feet with his flaps at uh, 2, I think it was, um, on his uh, 320 or 321, whatever it was. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I can see where certain companies may have it de-identified and or um, there's protections, but not all companies have that. And he's already in, having to dance through a lot of hoops. Uh, because the folk data on and he's on the air safety committee which is the ir- irony in the whole thing so i don't know how okay. it is that i mean he might be personally embarrassed about that but if he's got a re- good reason for being unstabilized at that point then you know he just says okay and if he was uh, unstabilized and persisted with the approach he's got to put his hands up and go i, I made a mistake but that's the whole point of our the the culture of our uh, aviation industry is that we allow people to make mistakes and we don't um, give them a punishment as a result we we you know allow them to put their hands up and go yes I made a mistake and then they're allowed to be retrained and move on that's that's all the part of our airline and open reporting culture surely 
Well, in, in the biggest advantage of FOQA, honestly, is that they gather all the data, they see trends, and then they're able to mitigate those through training and in, in, in activities that will help to enforce uh, positive learning curves and help to make the airline or the you know airplane or whoever whoever is operating it uh, a much safer operation if they choose to do so, as we do at Acme. Yeah, okay. So some additional information, which was shared by uh, Armando in the chat room, he shared a link to um, the Google Maps of this airport. So you can kind of see where the um, localizer antenna and, and wall are uh, in relation to the uh, runway. And best we can tell, it looks like they're about 300 meters from the threshold. So he went 300 meters beyond the end of the runway and was still not high enough in altitude to avoid hitting that wall and localizer. Mid, yeah. Midpoint on the airplane. That's yeah. even scarier. Quite scary. And then just beyond that, I think there's, you know, town and houses and things. So fortunate it wasn't. But I had no warning light, so it's okay. We'll what, just what's the big continue. Deal? Why are you making you know, such a big I'd be, deal I'd be very interested this. to know if the runway end identifier lights were damaged as well. Because this mm-hmm. really points to that the aircraft did not rotate until just before the, the, uh, the antenna in the wall. Either because way, it's, the, the it's damage would be more towards the tail of the airplane, I would imagine, if if they're trying to climb away. That's what this damage is telling me. And that's what's scary. Well, I think we're going to learn more as the investigation continues. So, you know, let's go ahead. And since we're still on this um, incident, uh, why don't we go ahead and just uh, address this uh, piece of feedback regarding this? Since sure. We're Which number is it? Uh, number one. 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 Oh, excellent. Brett says captains jeff nick dana and dr steph looks to be an interesting accident glad only egos and careers were only harmed in this accident and sadly lots of airframe damage how does the captain of the flight allow an airplane to take off this low is it a bad flap setting or density altitude surely it isn't overloaded it may be and don't call me surely i guess we will learn if and when the findings are published i know you are uh, you all have been over the power settings and takeoff d ratings on the show multiple times do you think that this could have been the issue yeah it could have been actually uh maybe uh not selecting the correct performance uh numbers and settings yeah, yeah mm-hmm. sure maybe the load the people that loaded the airplane gave them bad data on how much they really weighed Mm-hmm. Possibly, but I, I think uh, Dana's feeling that he wasn't uh, in a f- in a sort of rotated position, which he would have done when he got to the right speed. If he was overweight, he'd have just sat there on the ground until he hit the aerials. But it would have struck all the way down the fuselage, not just in the center point. So I, I'm sort of uh, seeing where Dana's going with that and thinking, well, he wasn't in a nose high position when he hit those aerials. He was fairly flat, so they. That may indicate that he wasn't overloaded. I'm tending towards the wrong flap setting myself. Yeah, and okay. and, and, and let's th- let's just be fair with this. It you know, as we're going down the runway, we hit our V1 and rotate speed. Right, V1 is our decision speed. We don't know what where he hit that V1 speed, but he may have hit that V1 speed, and the acceleration wasn't there. The aircraft wasn't flying off the runway. Flaps weren't set properly. That type of scenario, what you're mentioning, Nick, and, and that's exactly yeah. what I'm thinking, is that they just couldn't get the aircraft off the ground. Yeah, too low a power setting, yep. something like that. Something yep. like that. So everything that uh, Brett has you know, brought up, I think, is absolutely accurate. Could be any of those. 
Now, yep. you guys, do you time yourselves to 80 knots when you make that call? No. No, we don't have an SOP, but I always glance down at my clock and make sure that I'm at under 30 seconds to 100 knots. Now, it would be a brave man that would reject takeoff just based on that data. Uh, oh, I'm 31 seconds at 100 knots, so I'm going to reject my takeoff with no other indications. But it would certainly make me look around and double-check everything, and if necessary, I would just slip the throttles up to toga just to make sure that there wasn't a problem with the performance and I was giving myself the best chance. So for me, it's a, it's a, it's a wake-up call. If I'm not at 100 knots by 30 seconds, and which is, you know, kind of a, that's pretty slow if you've got to that point. You might have a dragging break and hadn't realized or something, you know. They, just another, another piece of situational awareness, right? Yeah, exactly right. That's pretty amazing to me. You guys don't use, you use 80 knots and then no, after we, that there's no V1? No, it's not what I said. Okay. We use, uh, for a start, we have a 100 knot call, not an 80 okay. knot call. And I time myself to 100 knots. Gotcha. And that's Sorry. just a personal thing. So I just check my acceleration rate to 100 knots. No, we have the standard uh, V1 calls just as everyone else. So, uh, that, you know, that was, that, that's normal. I, I just make sure that up to 100 knots, I have accelerated well enough to reach it in 30 seconds. Otherwise, I'm starting to look around the aircraft to make sure there is everything's in the right place and everything's good. Okay, makes sense. Very good. Well, I think we have beaten the proverbial dead horse, right? Yeah, yeah on this one, I think so. Poor but, horse. Wow, it's just one of those stories that you look at and you go, what, Very true how, this. why? Yeah, this have been surprisingly a high number of people who put the wrong performance figures in, though, and got away with it. Now, this bloke yep. didn't, <laughs> for example. He, they thought they might have. <laughs> yes. Just possibly. keep going. No one, no one will notice. <laughs> Just a little buff Shh. out. Nothing, nothing to see here. <laughs> if you haven't seen the pictures that we're referencing of the damage to this aircraft, you should actually check it out because it's not subtle. It is. And I love, yeah, I love the company's kind of defense of the whole thing. Well, I mean, it was just the outer part, the surface of the skin and the honeycomb, and but not the actual pressure vessel. So it was okay. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, like that makes it all right. Yeah, mm -hmm. and like that's not going to be excessive drag and excess fuel burned and all that yeah, kind of and, stuff. And smashed cables and yeah, and yeah. hydraulic lines and all the other things that could have gone wrong. Yeah, sorry, uh, that doesn't fly. Inches, in, well, mere inches. No pun intended. Inches yeah. away. <laughs> but it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. Sorry, don't worry about it. All right, it. number uh, B, or number letter B, American Airlines. <coughs> get all I'm getting up. all choked up just thinking about it. Mm -hmm. <sighs> An American Airlines flight. Uh, flight 263 declared a medical emergency. Uh, they were in flight from Dallas to Beijing, China. And uh, they had a medical emergency and decided to, to divert to Edmonton. And uh, uh, let's see, which one of those? Uh, Al Alberta? No. Yeah. Alberta. Yeah, Isn't that Alberta. the uh, is province? Canada. And uh, then when they were coming into Edmonton for their divert, uh, they started configuring the airplane and had a problem with their slats and flaps. And realized that uh, they couldn't land at Edmonton because they would rather land at an airport that had longer runways, which is what we would all do. And so then they diverted from their first divert airport to their second, which was Calgary. And uh, so 
not sure exactly how long it took them to do all this. They had to burn, or did they? No, they dumped fuel. I think a couple of different times to get the uh, airplane down to a safe landing weight, and uh, everybody walked away unscathed. But uh, I'm not sure about the person that had the medical emergency, though. How yeah, I don't think there's any information did. in the. Uh, it was a cardiac medical emergency, but I don't know the outcome. So hopefully it was, it was a, a good outcome. Yeah, I hope so too. Um, it was a 787-8 twin jet Dreamliner, according to FlightAware. What's that look like? Looks like a 747. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you're a journalist, that's Sorry. what it looks like. Yeah, it's got it looks four like engines and a big hump on top. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's what anyway. fun of. Uh, yeah, so we have that. It wasn't that guy's day, was it? No, he must not have, at all. He sounds must like have thought, a, this sounds yeah. like a command assessment simulator. That's what I was going to say, <laughs> mm-hmm. having flashbacks to being in the simulator. Yep. It's like, well, you've got and, this medical emergency. Oh, but now you can't land because you have problems with your flaps. Right. Multiple, Multiple emergencies. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's where that training, hey, yeah. you exactly don't expect right. it to happen, but, but you, you, you have the to ability kind of, to uh, work out what the probability of this happening was. I mean, if you'd done a calculation, you'd have said to yourself, Double emergencies? No, we don't. We don't cater for those because they never happen. Well, they do sometimes. Well, yeah. Here's the proof in the pudding. Mm-hmm. Never say never. And by right. the way, excellent decision. Why? Why jeopardize over 200 passengers for one passenger? Uh, if you have a mechanical issue and choose the longer runway, kudos to him for making that decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, they uh, they landed pretty fast, didn't they? I, I believe. Do, does Do it have, have the speed in I have read it on a different... Uh, okay. What do they say? Yeah, I, I haven't got the actual figure, but um, I seem to remember yeah. it was like almost a flapless landing or something close, and it, they were down at mm-hmm. about 180 knots. So, yeah, I mean, that's pretty quick. Yeah, that 14,000 foot long runway in Calgary, I think. Yep, 14. Mm. Yes. Now, the, you know, the runway wasn't short at Edmonton, no. 11,000 feet, but, you know, when you are in a situation where you're having to fly that fast because you don't have the, the flaps and the slats to help you uh, with, you know, reshaping your wing, yeah, you definitely you, want as much runway as you can get. If you have the opportunity for more length of the runway, definitely take it. Yep. Longer is better, they say. Okay. Do they? Uh, Letter C. Fa- fa- faster <laughs> isn't better. Yes, too much or a lot more energy that you have to dissipate. But the width, um, width of this, the runway is important too, so you have directional. <laughs> don't have directional control <laughs> issues. That's what she said. Steady, steady the buff. Steady. Uh, family show, ladies okay. and gentlemen. Family show. That's enough. Uh, calm down, everyone. <laughs> Moving, Where's HR, HR? Moving HR, on. Moving on. Moving on. I believe number letter C. Number letter C. Uh-huh. Uh, a, this is. Wow, this one could have really gone horribly wrong. I think it uh, I did. Mean, it, did. <laughs> it did, but it could have been even worse. Nobody got hurt. Uh, but uh, a Belgian Air Force mechanic who was working on an F 16 in a hangar uh, somehow, <laughs> maybe he was working Nick, on how this. How does that remind you of me somehow? Really? Uh, I'm not quite sure why. I have why? no idea why. Accidentally open fire, opens fire. Huh? Why does that remind you of you? Why do you didn't, often didn't you say it reminds open me of me? fire? No. That's why I thought I heard you say. I'm sorry. It must be that British accent. Uh, Starting over. 
Jeff, Jeff, just mute him again, will you? <laughs> I'm gone. See you. <laughs> no. Go check so on your soup. Let's, let's do item C. A Belgian Air Force mechanic accidentally opened fire on and destroyed an F-16 fighter jet while servicing another warplane. Uh, he was in a hangar um, working on, I think it was a 20 millimeter cannon. I don't recall. I think I was reading that in one of the articles uh, referring to this. Yeah, incident. it'll be the, the standard 20 millimeter, 100 uh, rounds a second uh, Gatling man. gun <laughs> that they have. That, uh, same as the Eagle, uh, same as the F 18. It's a fantastic weapon, but geez, it fires fast. Well, somehow this mechanic, and I'm. I'm think I'm wondering if he was working on that system because how how would you accidentally I mean don't you have to arm the gun and aren't there certain things that you have to do to have access to the trigger on the on the well, gun it, I mean it, if it's in a hangar for heaven's sake what was it being loaded in a hangar the only time you load it is usually on the um, flight line and then in a safe direction you always got safe headings for armed aircraft just in case something cooks off accidentally. Um, so and why it's in a hangar armed, I don't know. Um, and then there are usually, if you're going to work on a weapon, uh, even if it's uh, not armed, you're usually going to put interlocks in there uh, to prevent it. There's usually a mechanical interlock and an electrical interlock when the engineers are working on it because, of course, things they can do can sometimes override the electrics uh, that were in the cockpit that allow the weapon to fire. Um, so I, I'm, I just trying to work out why uh, they'd have an armed aircraft. Now, yeah, I'm going to guess here. They they had the aircraft armed, forgot it was armed, put it in the hangar, and the bloke was sitting in the cockpit, probably just finishing the tow, perhaps sitting in the cockpit, and he's going, "Ooh, I wonder what happens if I pull this." Fighter <laughs> <laughs> like pilot for a moment. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> But, uh, See, I was thinking yeah. actually probably a little more benign situation where you're just turning around to climb out of the cockpit and accidentally, you know. Oh, that's what I tell everybody. Uh-huh. I accidentally <laughs> kick Give the, the master the arm on and yeah. then I accidentally need the trigger. But no, no, I mean, no, seriously, <laughs> this, this, there's so many safety precautions uh, that should have prevented this happening. There has to be a major breakdown in uh, the procedures for this to occur. Yeah. Well, it destroyed the F-16 that I guess took direct fire from and another F-16 was next to it. I think also sustained a little bit of damage, but uh, I think they were able to salvage that one. If you look at the photos that we'll include in the show notes, you'll see the um, uh, the burnt out um, carcass of the F-16 that got nailed by the uh, accidental fire, yeah, the friendly I fire. I'm just wondering, and you know, how many rounds went off? Because I don't see much peripheral damage. I mean, uh, there's a big gap in the hedge. <laughs> Do they cut the hedge down as well? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm only joking. Uh, it's just that normally, you know, you'd expect to see the odd uh, hole in the hangar behind, or you know, something. But I guess it would only take one of those bullets to hit the fuel tank, right? Uh, yeah, and particularly if it's an incendiary. But uh, you know, it depends yeah. what they had on board or, or on high explosive. That would have. Made a big mess very quickly. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that uh, that mechanic is going to have some splaining to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let's stay on the subject of military aircraft. The uh, worldwide F-35 fleet was grounded 
temporarily for inspections related to that crash. Remember, we were talking about the crash uh, somewhere off of the coast. It was in Beaufort, uh, South Carolina. There you go. Um, The state in which Steph resides. Currently. And yes. Yeah. Um, And so we were wondering, we talked about it on the show. Uh, Nobody knew exactly what happened there, but the uh, pilot did eject safely, I'm pretty sure. And we were wondering if this was the first accident and crash of an F-35. And indeed it was. And several of these articles mentioned that. And apparently it had something to do with a fuel engine fuel tube. Uh, had some some problems, and so they immediately grounded the fleet uh, to inspect the airplanes with uh, or inspect the fuel tubes on the okay, uh, airplanes. Guys, what's a fuel tube? I mean, I know what a fuel a pipe is, but what's a fuel tube? It's very much like a fuel pipe. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever heard it called that before? Mm, no, no, not really. Fuel no, I'm line, just if, maybe. Fuel yeah, line? fuel line. Fuel pipe? I've heard fuel lines, yeah. yeah. I've never heard of a fuel tube, but apparently well, whoever's writing this article likes that term. Yeah. Did they include a picture of a 747 for the F-35? <laughs> <laughs> the fuel tube of a 747. Yeah. <laughs> it turns out that um, most of the F-35s now are uh, have returned to flying status. They've done their inspections. And, uh, and on the rest of them, they're trying to find the fuel tubes. They can only find pipes. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the problem. <laughs> okay, so we'll see if, uh, if there's I mean, anything to, else to, to that fair, story. To be fair, this sort of thing is not uncommon in an aircraft that's just been introduced in service. There are usually a lot of niggles that you don't reveal in test flying that only come in uh, on the production aircraft. And yeah, these things happen. So maybe it was a fuel niggle. <laughs> Could have been. Could no, I don't know. Okay. Uh, And again, still staying in the military realm, uh, this next news item, uh, Hurricane Michael, you mentioned it uh, earlier in the show, uh, Nick, the the storm, basically Tyndall Air Force Base was like the epicenter of this terrible hurricane that uh, made landfall in the panhandle of Florida. And Tyndall Air Force Base is also the home to uh, one of the units that have the F-22s. And uh, a number of them had left, uh, been left behind in hangars. And I think probably because they weren't in airworthy condition to fly, um, they were undergoing maintenance, etc. And uh, apparently as many as four of the F-22s were destroyed, which is not which, a good thing not at not all because expensive. these things are not cheap. Price, pricey airplanes. Yeah. yeah. And I'm um, wondering why they didn't fly them out. Was it probably due to mechanical issue? I mean, who knows? That's that's the only thing you can think of. It's the aircraft was not what. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I was just I was just reacting right, to you, the the way you were reacting. It's like you're rubbing your head and so forth. So that's why I kind of stopped there. But yeah, no. I mean, one has to wonder why they did not fly those aircraft out. And the only thing I can come up with is that they weren't safe or mechanically fit to fly. We agree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if they could have got a mandibone in any formal manner. Uh, you know, without radars, without canopies, you know, in almost any, so long as it's basically flyable, VFR, you could have got them out in time uh, to get ahead of the storm. But once uh, that, and that storm, uh, it, it deepened and became more powerful pretty quickly. They they wouldn't have got that many days notice that it was going to be of the strength it is. Now, the thing that I was surprised at, and this is all kind of down to Air Force budgets, I suspect, is that they didn't have 
um, hurricane-proof safe havens on the um, airfield. Uh, I mean, most NATO bases that I go to have uh, hardened aircraft shelters that would have withstood this hurricane without any problem, could have hidden them in those. But Tyndall didn't seem to have uh, those facilities. And for the price of one of these jets, you could have put up... uh, a bunch of uh, hardened aircraft shelters. Uh, Interestingly, that- back in uh, 1992, there was another hurricane that hit the base, Hurricane Andrew, and it destroyed 80% of the base at that time as well. Oh, no, well, I'm sorry. That was a different... Was it the same? That was a different base because that was in South Yeah, Florida. but I Home, mean, the, the principle... Base, so. Homestead, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, the, the principle so, stands, though, doesn't yeah. it, Steph? Having learned the lesson with one base, you'd have thought, well, Tyndall's pretty much in, in a vulnerable area as well. Let's put some precaution there so that we can hide the our valuable jets away if we need to yeah but going back to what excuse me what you were saying earlier um you know the storm did come up fairly quickly um and most of the predictions for the vast majority of the duration of the storm showed it you know staying around category two strength which is a strong hurricane certainly um but it was basically what the final 12 to 24 hours before it made landfall where it basically intensified pretty rapidly and was just short of a category five hurricane. So I think given those time constraints and if it was, you know, aircraft that were not airworthy in the first place, that's not a lot of time to uh, make arrangements. But like you said, why not take the precaution in the first place? But yeah, I mean, uh, I military know. units I don't have are, are always ready for a snap drill anyway. I mean, uh, squadrons should be able to generate the maximum number of serviceable aircraft in a very short time. So, I mean, that's part of the uh, whole um um, raison d'etre of a military unit is being able to respond quickly. They're well practiced at it, so they they should have had sufficient time to get what they could airborne um, in in whatever means. Uh, you know, uh, crippled with gear stuck down or the flaps stuck down, whatever state it was, they they could have got it a few hundred miles away, which would have saved them. Well, they were they received a lot of criticism. The uh, the upper brass of the uh, air force regarding what you're just talking about there. Captain Nick. And um, uh, an interesting article, I'll put um, a link to it in the show notes for this item in the news uh, by Tyler Rogaway um, from the war zone, part of the the drive.com. The title of the article is setting the record straight on why fighter jets can't all simply fly away to escape storms. And one of the things they mentioned is that readiness rate that you, you just mentioned, Nick, and they said that they've been struggling with that, with the uh, latest generation of of fighters. They have a horrible readiness rate. And, uh, but anyway, it was an interesting article. I think you would be interested. Yeah, I I did actually read it. Uh, okay. And I was looking at the sort of 50% readiness rates for the F-22 compared with 70%, say, for an F-15, the older generation, yeah. But we're not talking about readiness to go to war. We're talking about just getting airborne. So, yeah. you know, whether you, even if you fly it without a canopy, you can probably, you know, safely do that on some aircraft. I mean, there's all sorts of um, rules you could say, well, this aircraft's not fit to go to war, but it's fit just to move 200 miles and landed again um gear stuck down you know all sorts of things so there, there is that element uh, the same thing that we would apply in a survival scramble uh, you know if we get the you know in the old days of the cold war if we got the four minute warning there'd be a survival scramble and any aircraft that could fly in any form or manner was launched uh within the four minutes so that it would survive the nuclear attack and then it would be landed somewhere else or brought back and if the base had survived etc 
Um, so that principle still exists. Um, I just happen to think that, yes, obviously there's some aircraft that they just physically can't get it, or may not even have engines in it or whatever. Mm-hmm. So in which case you've got to have a little safe haven on the airfield there for those that uh, are obviously left on the ground. The other thing that they're talking about is whether they're even going to consider rebuilding the base at all. Just, that would be a yeah. hell of a hole in, <laughs> in the... USAF's inventory yeah. of bases. That Tyndall is an important base. It is. Yeah. I think it's a $3.4 billion asset or something like that. So it's yeah. A, but I mean, yeah, relocating all those training of, units and yeah. everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, the aggressors are there, aren't they? Uh, yep. All sorts of uh, units. No, it was a great base. I mean, it's so sad to see it so badly damaged. Uh, but uh, no, I can't see the Air Force uh, abandoning it, surely. That was just one of the points mentioned in the article. Who yeah, knows interesting. You know, where that's coming from. Okay. Well, enough of that military stuff. Yeah. Let's, right. let's talk about general aviation crashes. A single-engine plane crashed at Gwinnett County Airport, which is a suburb of Atlanta on the northeast side. Uh, it was a 172 uh, with a instructor and student, and they were doing touch-and-go practice maneuvers, and it crashed somehow. There's really not a lot of information in this article. <laughs> they, it well, we made a mess of the 172. It's definitely, I mean, yeah. said consider it a complete loss. The pictures, um, yeah, that's not an airplane anymore. It's a pancake. <laughs> it does look like a pancake. That was a really yeah. hard touch. Yes. And yeah, no definitely. go. Is it, right. is it right on the piano keys? Yep. I, mean, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that was the uh, departure yeah. end or the... Uh, yeah, I don't know which end they were. I'm just assuming that that was the departure end, not the approach end. I, but I don't know. I can't tell from what's yeah. going on there. Anyway, I don't know. Yeah, not a lot of uh, meat in the story. It's an airport I've oh. been to, flown to. I actually met uh, Dispatcher Mike there once. Uh, I used had, to do a lot of flying at Briscoe. Yeah, and uh, had lunch or dinner or something at the little uh, restaurant on the field, which mm-hmm. was a interesting, quirky place, I will say. No, they both got out okay, didn't they? Yes, yes. yes. So good, good uh, news yeah. for the pilots on board. And by the way, Briscoe is Gwinnett County, because I did say Briscoe. I'm sorry. No, that's right. We 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 knew what you were talking about. I know you knew, yeah. but I don't know if the listeners know when I say Briscoe. Well, they do now. They do Was now. It it's Kilo quick. Lima Zulu uniform. Kilo uh, Lima Zulu Lima uniform is Zulu correct. Uniform. Yes, okay. I think about that for a second. Yes. That would be correct. All right. Well, if we find out any more information about it, we'll certainly mention it. Maybe. Item G, Lockheed Constellation trucked to TWA Hotel to serve as a bar. Uh, So I guess, uh, you know, they're doing that uh, big uh, TWA terminal and they're turning it into a uh, hotel Mm -hmm. at uh, John F. Kennedy International. And apparently they found this uh, rare Lockheed Constellation L-1649A Starliner, uh, somewhere that had been sitting there for like 30 some odd years, somewhere up in Maine at the uh, Auburn Lewiston Airport. And they uh, ended up trucking it down to New York City. Uh, the, uh, this man named Simon Graham, who grew up in the area and remembers driving by the Connie as a kid, uh, was asked to uh, help 
restore the airplane, uh, especially the the interior, because they wanted to really do it up for this fancy bar. And uh, he owns a local custom upholstery uh, business, was thrilled when he was asked to restore the airplane's 744 square foot interior. Uh, I'll quote from the article here. I, I thought it was kind of cute. All of a sudden, here was somebody telling me it was going to be a fancy bar at JFK, Graham recalls. They said, can you make it look like 1958? And I said, yeah. Glad <laughs> <laughs> he's enthusiastic about it. Yeah, love it. Love it. Like, Wait, you're paying me a lot of money to do this, hopefully? Sure, yeah. Sure, I can, I can deliver yeah. whatever. Heck, heck yeah. Graham installed a new subfloor in the plane's cabin, also in uh, outfitting the interior walls with imitation leather. Imitation leather? Simon. Well, it's going to have cocktail uh, right all over it. That's so. true. You really don't want to ruin the nice <laughs> Italian leather that he did yeah. use. For the seats he the also used deck. italian italian leather to reupholster seats in the cabin and on the flight deck uh he says this is a big deal there are thousands of people watching this project so far it's a crowning moment in my career unquote okay so well, i'm I guess excited to um actually see the hotel when it opens and actually see the uh connie as a bar in action me too we'll have to maybe have some kind of an apg meetup at the yes, bar yes yes in uh Kennedy. That'd Do we know the time frame on when this uh, is supposed to open? Is um, it getting close? I feel like um, listener Dave Abbey has information on it. That Dave Abbey, come on, where are you, man? Oh, he doesn't watch the show live. Nah. Um, plans call for the air. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Next spring, it says at the very ah, end okay, of the article. Okay. Next spring is when they're expecting it to open up. I can't wait to have a cocktail in this place. Me too. And sitting in the yes, uh, sitting in the cockpit, no less. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that'd be I, a perfect thinking, place to have a cocktail. Legally. Yeah, <laughs> Get some photographic evidence. <laughs> the, the next time I uh, I do a JFK next year, oh, uh, I'll be able to do one next year. I'll, I'll have a cocktail on the way to work. That'd be nice. <laughs> just to ease the nerves. You know, I just I just realized that uh, there was a second article, thank you, Liz, in here, and uh, some interesting information about this particular airframe it has a storied past including a stint in the 60s as an Alaska bush plane shuttling supplies to Prudhoe Bay. And uh, it also, in the 80s, it served as uh, served marijuana dealers as a drop plane in South America. I like the bush idea wow. better. Yeah. And I just spotted that Kelly Johnson designed the Super Constellation. I never knew that. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. yeah that's that's a good old Lockheed. He's a cool man. Yep. Hmm. And... Uh, uh, am I the only one that's formated on one? What? Formated? Yeah. I formated. No, I formated my Phantom on one once. That was, was that? Uh, it was a USAF one out of Iceland, uh, which was the uh, USAF's uh, AEW aircraft before the um, AWACS came along. And uh, it was flying out of Iceland just before they decommissioned them and got rid of them. And we did an intercept on them. And uh, first time I've ever seen a, a lady first officer because I was told to, uh, or would have been co-pilot in those days. I was told, asked if I could come up on the right-hand side. And uh, the, the co-pilot looked out of the window at me, took off a headset and shook out a big mane of blonde hair. And I thought, that bloke's got really long hair. <laughs> <laughs> These crazy Americans. Yeah, that's what I thought. He must be some surfer dude. 
<laughs> Nick, you're really dating yourself now. I know. It's terrible, <laughs> isn't it? Really, yeah. You saw a Connie in flight. That's uh, absolutely. Amazing. Yeah. I, I, that's something I wish I had burned in my memory bank. For sure. <laughs> well, it I'm, was a sweet day. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Um, H. This is kind of a a sad. Uh, well, no, this was. I thought this was a different one. Uh, an Air France triple seven, uh, Sao Paulo, uh, on October thirteenth, encountered cumulo glacii. Never heard that term before, but basically, it ran into a cloud full of hail. Hail, yeah. Hail, it did. Uh, they took off, encountered the hail, prompting the crew to stop the climb at flight level two seven zero. They descended, uh, descent, descended the aircraft to flight level 200 the dump fuel and they diverted to rio de, rio de janeiro in brazil where the aircraft landed safely on rio's runway 11 about 75 minutes past departure and uh, has some pictures of the ray dome a little bit of uh, denting going on there maybe even a slight little hole where uh, it encountered the hail yeah so i mean unfortunately the radar just can't see hail I don't care how good of radar you have, it just cannot see it. So I'm imagining if it's coming out of uh, uh, San Paulo, they're probably doing backside clock flying, so it's probably at night, and they can't really keep that distance that we try to keep uh, away from an anvil because they can't see it at night. So that would be my guess on that one. Well, it happened at 2018-1920Z-ish. Which uh, probably was still daylight, actually. So I was looking for yeah, that time. About yeah, twenty Z. Late be, afternoon. Yeah. Yeah, Three you're right. Sorry. Here. So actually, it'd probably be yeah, late afternoon there. I misspoke. But you're right about the fact that uh, it, hail is hard to see with uh, our radar technology because it's it's dry and the rain is wet, obviously, and that's what gives us the good strong returns. Uh, the hail. Uh, sometimes, as you mentioned, Dana, it's very difficult to see sometimes. But it's not the first time somebody's run into hail, and it, I'm sure will not be the last. No, nope. for sure. Uh, now, this is an interesting thing. We ha I did not re recall this incident or this accident when it occurred, uh, I believe, sometime in 2017, at the beginning of 2017, I believe, or maybe, what, what does it say here? Does it have a date on it? Um, anyway, uh, it happened in Finland. And it was an airplane, a G, a Gulfstream G-150, which is a business jet. Um, uh, the company that owned the airplane, Private Airlines Germany, and the uh, aircraft's identification is Oscar Echo Golf Kilo Alpha, had been parked outside the previous evening in uh, this Finnish um, city, Katilla, or Kittila. I'm not sure how that's pronounced. And... Uh, they uh, closed the outflow valve of the aircraft because I guess th this is the time of year where they were getting a lot of snow. I believe the temperature was like minus 22 degrees. Oh, the 4th of January. So that's yeah, when it occurred, year. I believe, in 2017. And so in order to keep the, um, the uh, snow from getting into places that shouldn't get into on this airplane, they, uh, they, they closed the outflow valve, the pressurization outflow valve, uh, the previous evening. And then they came out the next day. Um, and, oh, they said that they, he closed the captain closed the outflow valve, uh, po possibly by using the ditch, ditch button. 
in order to prevent in, ingestion of the uh, snow. Um, the informal practice of using the ditch button to close the valve was not authorized, uh, the Finnish Safety Investigation Authority says, because the uh, button is intended only for emergency use. Uh, the captain did not inform the first officer of the valve's closure. Okay, a little breakdown in communication. Uh, when the crew uh, showed up the next day, the captain, first officer, and cabin assistant, um, they were going to ferry the airplane to another city in Finland that I'm not even going to try to pronounce. Maybe somebody here can can do it, but I can't. Uh, the captain entered the cockpit and started the auxiliary power unit, the APU, uh, which generates electricity and bleed air for heating. So they wanted to rapidly warm up the airplane. Ekaterinburg. Was that in you. Finland? Ekaterinburg? Yeah. Vaguely I, I Russian. I'm guessing it is. Yeah. Um, the first officer, meanwhile, was outside brushing snow from the aircraft, and then shortly after that, the captain went out there to join him to uh, brush the snow off the aircraft. And then the captain went back into the airplane to get some gloves. And when he exited the aircraft, he, uh, the captain closed the door, leaving the cabin assistant inside. Uh, the investigators said that the cabin assistant started feeling the sensation of pressure in her ears and chest and sought to attract the pilot's attention by knocking on the window. And uh, then the captain attempted to open the air stair style door. So the door opens out and then, you know, the on the other side of the door, the interior of the door, there are some stairs. Um, he was able to crack the door open, but because the APU was on and the outflow valve was closed, uh, excessive pressure had built up inside the cabin. And as soon as the captain got the thing past that uh, lock, the door violently opened up on top of the captain and killed him it, and it knocked over the first officer as well yeah not good that's an unbelievably yeah. unfortunate accident isn't it um, yes who would have thought obviously some people did and he didn't and apparently they um the, he may have had a misunderstanding about how that ditch switch works uh if the pressurization is in automatic mode and you press press the ditch button uh the valve um uh doesn't open up it has to be in manual for the valve to open up i know nothing about that airplane so you know i'm just going on what this article is saying here um so yeah, it sounds like the procedure was not an authorized one at any rate yeah sad mm -hmm. what a way to die oh, yeah. smashed by a door yeah yeah, All right. it was quick. I don't know. Probably very yeah, quick. Yeah. Um, and this is a crazy one as well. A fatal seaplane crash in Australia may have been caused by a front seat passenger accidentally knocking out the Canadian pilot of the aircraft. The Australian newspaper reported Jerry Schwartz, a new part owner of the plane's owner, Sydney Seaplanes, Suggested crash investigators have a current belief that the pilot, who is a 44-year-old Gareth Morgan, was incapacitated before the December 31st crash of last year. Um, so they think that there, the, a possible scenario here may be that uh, one of the passengers was trying to move up uh, to take to position himself to take some pictures, and may have like knocked the the uh the pilot in the head with his elbow or something and knocked him out that'd have to be a really hard hit 
or maybe just a properly or you know, just a badly placed one. Or someone who already had some underlying condition that would make them more vulnerable. Yeah, right. maybe. I don't know. But I don't think they really know for sure. I don't know mm. if there would be any evidence kind of to show spe- this. Speculation at this speculation. point. Speculation. Yeah. It, um, well, see, in, in the uh, intoxication of the passengers. Well, this was another, that was another incident uh, in 2010. Oh, okay. Of a fl- float plane, plane crash article, off the though. West Coast. Yeah. Well, that's what they like to do. They like to try yeah, to. Yeah, like trying to link these things together. They probably. Yeah. Anyway, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Another good reason for not to have single pilot operations on commercial airplanes. I agree. I think all of us do. Um, Although it's I, a pretty. I mean, it's not a. Uh, it's not scheduled operations. It's not a, uh, a commercial airline. Yeah, I mean, obviously, somebody wouldn't have but access to the flight deck in a commercial airliner. But, you know, right, right. I mean, just think of this. What happens if you have a sudden onset of severe tooth pain? I mean, this is a mundane side thing that we can think about. But what happens if you have a toothache that comes on suddenly, right? And you're the only pilot in the flight deck. I mean, that'd be a bad situation. And that's just a mm-hmm. very non-predictable thing. And there's many other medical things that could happen. But a toothache is pretty debil- debilitating if, you have, uh, if you've ever experienced that, which I have, unfortunately. Sure. But for, you know, even in this country, though, just um, to make the point that, you know, Part 135 operations and other things like tours, um, seaplane flights uh, can all be single pilot operations. True. I've definitely sat in the front seat of many of those types of operations. Yeah, and when I was down in Belize going scuba diving, as a passenger, I was in the back of a caravan, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, I'm in the last row in this caravan. There's one pilot up there, and I'm a certified pilot. If anything should happen, it's going to be really tough for me to go all the way up to the front of the airplane, past all these passengers, to save the day. Here I come to save the day. That would have been, uh, you know, that's exactly what you're talking about. Is is if you're a single pilot, it could be uh, it could be disastrous for sure. Well, yes, a whole spate of uh, bad accidents here. Some really uplifting news this week. Yeah, I have some uplifting news though at the end of the uh, this whole thing. Um, Well, sort of. It's kind of odd actually. Um, The uh, Beechcraft 300 Super King Air uh, in Tucson that crashed last year. We did mention this briefly. Um, weren't sure exactly what happened. And it turns out that the accident report is telling us that the uh, pilot uh, underwent, uh, or the, the body of the pilot went, underwent toxicology testing, uh, revealed the pilot's use of multiple psychoactive substances, including marijuana, venlafaxine, mm-hmm. uh, amphetamine, pseudoephedrine. Pseudofedrin, okay. clonazepam, and uh, phenyramine. Okay. And uh, she w- speaks that, be a... that like she knows what they <laughs> <No>. are. <laughs> would, that, would that be something bad to have in your system stuff? Yeah. Uh, operating an aircraft, yeah. I wouldn't want someone driving a vehicle with all that on board either, to be honest. From what well, I can At least tell. not all at the same. I mean, it, certainly uh, not as a pilot anyway. I was going to put some qualifiers in there in terms of, you know, those medications being uh, prescribed for not, uh, we can probably remove that first one, marijuana, depending on what state you're in, but those other medications are prescribed for legitimate reasons. 
And I've certainly seen patients who have taken some combination thereof, and people have different responses to them, but I would not want people to be operating machinery, certainly not flying an aircraft under the influence of all of those medications at the same time. Apparently, their investigation didn't reveal any mechanical irregularities with the airplane, so that's why they're assuming it was the the substances that he had in the system. Sad. What a shame. Yeah. Preventable. Um, and then, uh, let's see, the next one, L, uh, sent in by Chris, uh, the guru in uh, northern Alabama. He sent in um, a link to an article from the AOPA regarding the ADSB equipment um, rebate. Uh, I guess uh, the FAA has reopened the $500 rebate program uh, to kind of encourage pilots out there, especially, I guess, general aviation pilots to install the uh, automatic dependent surveillance broadcast ADS-B uh, out equipment. And so if you're out there listening and you have not yet uh, equipped your airplane with the ADS-B, um, this might be a good time to consider it. Again, that's uh, you know an extra or taking $500 off the cost of installing one of these systems, which I believe probably is not very cheap. Was around two thousand, I think, are some of the close, figures yeah. that we've heard for the lowest end. I think with installation, it's closer to the three thousand uh, dollar price point. Okay. All right, and so we just wanted to be uh, make everybody aware of that, and then uh, finally uh, this story uh, in Atlanta. Well, some pork problems at Hartsfield Jackson Airport officials discover a cooked pig in checked luggage. Officials say Canine Hardy, a member of the airport's Beagle Brigade, alerted them to the baggage of a traveler from Ecuador. And inside, specialists discovered this, a nearly two-pound roasted pig head. Well, pork and pork products from other continents not allowed into the United States. So officers snapped this photo of Hardy and his find before the pig was seized and discarded. Wow. That's, that's, a, that's a tragedy. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Well, they say it was discarded. Through the human, they say human it was digestion discarded. system, I hope. Yeah. Who knows? I'm just Yeah, that's what they saying. say. The the pictures of the uh the beagle with his find were quite humorous too. It's like, okay, do I get my share now? <laughs> A very proud beagle. I was just thinking how much oh, this lazy dog behind me would like to have that job. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I yeah. I've got three dogs that can sniff out the sure most pork head. I assure no you, I can at all. sniff out that pork head as well. <laughs> all right, so cooked or uncooked? <laughs> oh yeah, mm, I'm getting hungry. Why am I hungry all of a sudden? Dana's on the job. <laughs> Love it. All right. Lighting career for you, Dana. Picture how I could dress that on my green egg right about now. Roast pork. Delicious. Yum. All right. Time now for feedback. Captain, incoming message. So we've already uh, covered the first one, uh, Brett Seymour, uh, the questions regarding the uh, Air India Express jet hitting the uh, ILS antenna assembly and the perimeter wall. Let's start with item two. Chris sends this in uh, and he addresses Nick directly. Nick, was this your idea? And the article is about a new Dreamliner Park scheduled to open October 12th. 
and no, no to where? answer that, it wasn't my idea, but I think it's so good, I think there should be several at every airport in the world. <laughs> with uh, with all their dud Rolls-Royce engines. <laughs> well, it's, it's only the no, English no, I'm not Rolls-Royce fussy about what engines they got. Grounded. Uh, uh, yes, but it's a Rolls-Royce engine. Yeah, I mean, all the air, uh, there are several different countries that have the uh, Rolls-Royce British. engine option. British. Yeah. They all have a part in it, right? Yeah, Yeah. don't forget the Scots and the Irish. They had a part in this to play. And the Welsh. In fact, they're the ones who are probably responsible for it. Absolutely. (laughs) Get a whole fleet of airplanes. (laughs) Terrible. Um, Passengers flying through Japan's Chubu Centraire International Airport. That's an interesting name. Nagoya. Oh, that's easier to say. Nagoya will have the opportunity to see a Boeing 787 Dreamliner up close starting on October 12th. That's the day, I guess it's already open then. That's the day the uh, when the airport will op- officially open its new four-story theme park, Flight of Dreams. <laughs> the uh, There's so many things you can say about that, but we're not going to. Um, <laughs> Anyway, nine different attractions, uh, jet and projection mapping display on the floor. Admission rates are about $7 for children in sixth grade and younger and about $11 for adults. Um, They have uh, something they call the uh, Seattle Terrace located on the second and third floors of the park. And the terrace is built to mimic the streets of Seattle, the city near which Boeing is headquartered. Chicago now. That's not true. It Boeing is not, is not headquartered in Seattle. Nope. It's Chicago. headquartered in Chicago. Yep. Yeah. Error. Uh, error. It was not error. The, our error. Do they have the first Starbucks, though? In Seattle? Yes. Yeah. Well, I wonder if they mimic the first Starbucks. Starbucks yeah. is Chicago. Well, anyway. I've been there. There's always a long line. Yeah. That's my coffee. Yes. Uh, That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> Everywhere Starbucks. I've been in Chicago. There's always a long line in Chicago. It's all well worth it. That's the thing. Somewhere. In the entire Chicago's city. A great city. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think we all love it. Chicago. Okay. Moving on. Thank you, uh, Chris, for uh, pointing that out to us and allowing. Nick to say something pithy. I haven't. I, I say oh. nothing of the fact that this brand new airplane has already been mothballs, but, you know. Yeah, but there's no Implied. brand new. Uh, uh, I was just going to say something really <laughs> bad. Stop. Okay, moving on. Alex. I'm going to stop. Yeah, I know. You, you managed yep. to restrain yourself. Yep. Okay. Alex writes. Actually, he sent us an audio file. Uh And uh, let's listen to what he sent us. Hey, good afternoon. This is Alex from Northwest Alabama. Um, I was doing some PPL training last night, returning to my home field after a night cross-country flight with my instructor. Now, this is a a very small Class E airport, um, and a a small regional airline operates out of this airport. Um, And as I was making my uh, my calls as I was returning at about 10 miles out, I noticed one of the pilots from this, this airline uh, was calling out a right base and then a right final for a certain runway when um, all of the traffic for all of the runways at this air, airport um, is always left traffic. Uh, I was taken aback by that. I had saw it as a very unsafe and, and I thought against regulation um, action, 
Um, and I was just wondering how how prevalent this type of stuff is and, and how serious that really was. Maybe I'm overreacting, but to me it seemed, again, very unsafe and uh, not predictable at all. So uh, maybe if you guys could provide some feedback on that, I'd appreciate it. And, and by the way, um, I believe my feedback on episode 321 was the uh, inspiration for the title of that episode, How to Land a Plane. And, and I'd like to say that uh, 30 hours later, I have finished all of my um, PPL requirements and am now using my last five hours to prepare for my check ride. Uh, hopefully here in about a month uh, to a month and a half. So I uh, appreciate your help along the way and uh, clear skies. Uh, have a great day. Thanks. Fantastic accomplishment. Yay. Way to go. Getting your private pilot certificate. Congratulations. Woo-hoo. Yay. <laughs> no, that's not a noisemaker. I don't know where that sound effect is. Sorry. I'll delete that. The one that like, you know, the <laughs> Hey, Jeff, I get some. I get some saying that one. Wow. Noise. Not, not a raspberry. Yeah. <laughs> No, but you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean his question about the uh, traffic pattern. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, the more we talk about it, the harder That's it's going to be for me to to eliminate <laughs> so that from when now. I edit it. That's the point. I know. So I guess I have to leave it in now. Too late. Oh, well. It's out there. <laughs> okay, we'll leave it in then. Um, so regarding his question um, about the regional operator operating into that small airport and not following the left traffic pattern. I think that, well, you know what? I'm going to sit back. I know how to answer this, but I think that we have some other experts in the uh, panel that will be able to, uh, I'd like to hear the uh, CFI's explanation for this. Yeah. That's what I was kind of scratching my head on that as well, Steph, because wouldn't this, wouldn't these, what would the CFI (laughs) say? Or (laughs) what am I to say? So if you were, if you were teaching this to well, not you, the CFI, the CFI that was with the, oh, yes. I see. Was that is that what you were oh, saying, yeah, Steph? Ah, oh, yeah. you're going to put it on the onus on him. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So the CFI is going to talk now, and all we have to do is look at the rules. And the rules are that any aircraft that's on a straight in final has right away. Period. So if we're if we're working at or approaching at an airport that there's a lot of VFR traffic, i.e. Daytona Beach. All right. Um, the aircraft like us, you know, you're talking about if we're cleared for a visual approach or going to seven uh, left into into Daytona, for example, that's quite the common uh, runway that we go into. A lot of times there'll be other aircraft that are, you know, on in, working in the pattern because that's where ERAU is where you were just uh, last week. Um, so the aircraft that is on the long straight in final and or uh, approaching the aircraft or the airport, excuse me. Um, is going to have the right of way. So that really explains it. And, and there's really not a whole lot of airports out there that you find a whole lot of commercial operations. You'll f- probably find more corporate flights into smaller airports than you will uh, in an airliner. So there, you know, a, a jet is required to be, or a faster aircraft is required to be at 1,500 feet above AFE whereas a uh, general aviation airplane is going to be a 1,000 feet. So if they're flying a visual approach per se and they're flying visually like a uh, student in training would be um, and they're flying the the traffic pattern, they're going to be 500 feet above that aircraft and more than likely overtake that aircraft. But that's the most important part of having a 
CTAF, Common Traffic Advisory Frequency, so people can communicate. Go ahead, Jeff. I don't think that was, I don't think it was a situation with no tower. I think there was a tower, wasn't there? Yeah, I don't. That's not what Dana was saying. It was just that there was yeah. communication, so that people can build their picture of where everyone okay. else is. You know, in if if you're in a towered situation, when you're in class Charlie, a class Bravo, more likely, of course, class Bravo, you're not going to have students uh, usually flying through there. But class Charlie or class Delta. Um, you know, you have a air traffic control tower there that are going to that are going to mitigate. Like, for example, back down, down there in Daytona, that's Class Delta, right? So you've got an air traffic control tower that's sequencing aircraft to the airport with an approach approach uh, um, sector or uh, um, approach control. That's what I was trying to think of. Sorry. Um, so, anyways, in that type of scenario, yeah, I mean, a, a turbojet aircraft is going to probably be usually the first one cleared in because well we're so much faster and usually on final approach where we have a much longer final approach segment because of our speed so we're not going to turn a 45 degree angle to the final final approach to go to you know a base which is what we generally teach as a cfi is you look over your left wing generally speaking and you look for the 45 degrees from the runway, and that's when you start your base turn. You start slowing the aircraft down. You start configuring the aircraft, i.e. putting down your flaps and pulling the power back to 1,500 RPM, and you get yourself established on the base and, and continue down the approach into final approach. So it, it, it's really, you know, we do work under the same rules, and they're, you know, class echo, which is controlled airspace, and class G, which is, Really, there's no real control of the airspace around the airport. So, the, you know, it really depends on the class of, of the airspace that you're working in. I mean, if you go to Prescott, Maine, at 11 o'clock at night, you know, you, you're probably looking class E to class G airspace. So, you know, it, it, it really it depends on the individual situation. But someplace like Daytona, you get, you get control tower approach control. And so they're going to give the uh, they're going to give the preference to whoever they find or decide to give the preference to. Well, Robert in the chat room is making a, a good point. He said he did say in his audio that uh, it was a Class E airport. Then he says that kind of suggests that there was no tower. OK, so let's <laughs> assume there's no tower. Correct. And yes, we do operate uh, airliners into non-towered airports, Liz. Um, I know it blew me away when I was a new pilot at Acme Airlines, uh, flying flight engineer and flying into Bozeman, Montana. And at that time, they didn't even have a part-time tower. They had no tower. And Salt Lake Center said, uh, radar service terminated, cleared for an approach. And we were still on an IFR flight plan, but we were not in radar contact anymore. And there was no tower. And I'm thinking... Can we really do this? Is this legal? Yes. <laughs> I know we can. Um, that was an eye opener for me. But um, uh, but I you know I kind of got from um, the feedback from Alex that his concern about it being unsafe in his words was the fact that he wasn't utilizing the proper direction of the traffic pattern. So he came in and did a right base instead of doing a left base. Correct. Well, and that's that's the key on the C CTAF. You know, if if you know, and and it's very important that you know most most aircraft today, let's face it, have some type of radio communication, have a transponder. Most of them do. Not all. You don't. You're not required to have them, but most do. Unless you get to real rural, rural areas, you're going to have. Generally speaking, most aircraft are going to have that. But you know, the, let's let's be more specific. 
Class E airspace and Class G airspace. A Class E airspace airport has some type of instrument approach to it, whereas a Class G airport has no instrument approach to it. And I forget what mm, the ceiling is. Yeah. Was that stuff? I was say that's not entirely true with Class G airports. Honestly. Well, it it can have. Generally speaking, Class G is not going to have an approach. Generally speaking, but it can have an approach. But it's it's there's there's a lot of things that I'd have to go. I'm actually right in the middle of doing my CFI renewal, so I'm going to have to refresh myself on all this. But it's been a while since I've looked at it. There are there are some airports out there that will have a Class G will have some type of approach to it. But generally speaking, it's uncontrolled. So that's the real difference between class E and class G. And also, I think it's what, 1,200 feet above the elevation it's of the airport, Steph? 700 or 1,200, depending on 700 the. 700 or 1,200. So going, digging back into my memory banks. But, you know, is it safe? Well, what is, what is the prescribed traffic pattern at the airport? Are we, you know, flying the prescribed traffic pattern? Well, you can look at the. Uh, um, airway information, not not the AIM, um, AFD, Airport Flight Directory for the airport, which is published by the government, and it will tell you what the traffic pattern, the altitude for the traffic pattern is at that airport. Or you can overfly the airport, or you can call and contact CTAF and ask what is the traffic pattern. So there there are different ways to to um, ascertain what the current and proper traffic pattern at that airport. And yes, is it a safety concern? Of course. I mean, if, if everybody's, you know, in the left pattern, you're in the right pattern. Well, now you're in a, you, you could potentially be in a head-on collision on, on a base to final approach. Certainly. Now, those, those airports that we do, Dana and I do fly into that have sometimes um, non-towered operations going on in our company pages, we are given the information about the traffic pattern direction mm-hmm. and also we have guidance that basically says it's up to the discretion of the flight crew to determine what the safest um, mode of operation would be does it make more sense to get into the flow of the pattern and enter a, a 45 to downwind and do an, a, a pattern like that or uh, would it be best to just continue with a, a straight in approach? But I think the key is, as Dana and Steph has mentioned here, is communication. You know, making sure that you're telling everybody that's within earshot on that frequency that where you are, what you are doing, uh, so that everybody's made aware of it. And uh, so it's not necessarily, I, in my opinion, uh, unsafe what the regional airline airliner did unless they just completely disregarded all the operations that were going on there at the airport. So, you know, I, I can just my experience with this operating at a class E uh, echo airport, um, non-towered, um, but with regularly scheduled uh, regional airline traffic. Um, back when I was uh, just after I got my private pilot certificate um, and actually was doing some instrument training at the time as well. Um, but basically what I observed to happen I mean, it depended on, you know, a lot of variables. So which direction we're landing on the main runway, which was uh, 0220. And the traffic was almost always coming from the west to this airport, which was quite a bit in the uh, eastern part of the state of North Carolina. Um, So a lot of times what would happen is if uh, we were landing to the south um, and the conditions were visual, the regional aircraft would join um, 
the pattern by overflying the field and then joining a downwind base final. If, however, the for the uh, for the landing to the south. If, however, the um, conditions were more marginal and they were um, uh, in instrument conditions for quite a bit of the approach, or even for the majority of the approach, then they would generally be vectored into uh, join a downwind or join a um, a final. So it'd be a right pattern to land to the south, if that makes sense. But there was always communication on the common traffic advisory frequency. Any aircraft that was in the vicinity of that airport would be or should be listening to that uh, frequency, and people can um, generally figure out where each other are based on position reports. Right. Yeah, and that's exactly the key. I mean, as I said, most most general aviation aircraft, and of course all commercial aircraft, have some way of communicating between us, you know, in between in between each other, so you can get a kind of visual picture, and, and that's kind of a requirement. That's what the fire aim says. And, uh, you know, as I said, the AFD Airport Facility Directory would have that information published as well. So I'm going to say no more on it. Yeah. I'm not sure I helped or we helped at all with <laughs> Alex's question. <laughs> I guess it's up in the air. Some people maybe think that it's not very safe and others didn't think that safety was compromised. But we'll see. Uh, or not we'll see, but uh, that's just or different thoughts about it. And then there's a nice discussion in the chat room. We all know how Captain Nick feels about visual approaches. Um, and and uh, some of us feel differently. Um, but that's because I'm from America and I'm a cowboy and I like visual approaches. Yeah, and, and I'm, <laughs> like, we don't have much choice. And I'm flying a heavy jet. So, you know, I, yeah. I think personally in a lot of the airfields I go to, like major airfields like Washington, doing visual approaches and mixing traffic is just a way for the uh, – traffickers to abrogate their responsibility to me rather than uh, taking control of separation for themselves uh, and quite honestly uh, when you're mixing with uh, small light aircraft uh, we don't have a particularly good view out of our flight decks it's not brilliant and certainly if we do spot someone our ability to maneuver the airplane is incredibly restricted we've only got one real option and that's to go around so if you think you're too close to someone. So it's it's not an option I uh, like taking. I much prefer to let the air trafficker do his proper job, put us on an instrument approach, and let us uh, come in that way. Yeah, the bigger um, concern for me, at least, is at a lot of these non-towered air- airports that I fly into and out of regularly, um, where you have a single runway. So um, landing, departing, either direction, depending on the wind. If the winds are... Uh, either negligible or not particularly favoring one runway or the other, so kind of just more of a direct crosswind, you will get, it's really pilot's discretion as to which runway you wish to use. Um, If someone's already established in the pattern and going one direction, most people will continue with that as long as that's safe for the wind conditions. But I've certainly encountered it where, you know, I've made, I think I talked about this actually not too long ago, where I was making radio calls for my intentions to enter the traffic pattern to land on, I don't know, we'll say uh, runway uh, two and no one else was saying anything back to my radio calls. And I got there and found out that someone was in the pattern going the opposite direction for runway two zero. So, uh, and not making any radio calls at all. So you really just have to pay attention and stay outside of the traffic circuit until you're fully aware of what's going on in the traffic pattern. ADSB is going to help a lot when that becomes compulsory. Yeah. yeah that aircraft also did not have ADSB out. Yeah. <laughs> so they may not have even had a radio. 2020, the world will change. 
Mm-hmm. At least right. in America, will don't hold your breath. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hold your breath. <laughs> um, so, and it's interesting to me that our perspectives um, are so different regarding these. The, to me, I see where you're coming from, Nick, and the fact that you feel that. Um, it's better for the ATC person to have full control over what you're doing in your spacing, wake turbulence criteria and everything else, uh, implying that uh, it, it's going to be safer that way. For me, if I'm clear to visual approach and now I'm responsible for it, and if I think I'm too close to the preceding traffic, I'll slow down because I've been clear to visual approach. I can do whatever I need, need to do that's necessary for the safety of, of my flight. So I feel like it gives me more options to operate more safely. So it's, it's just interesting. Our no, no, I, I, I agree that you do, but I have that option also, even when I'm on under air traffic's guidance on an instrument approach. I, if I can mm-hmm. see the guy ahead, I can still unilaterally make a decision to do something that is in the best interest of the safety of my aircraft. But it's not just me now monitoring it. I've got myself and the air traffic controller doing it. So, well, we've you got know, two people they're still going to be lo- they're still monitoring it. <laughs> Yeah, we, it's not like they're looking not, at something else. Well, know? they might very well, having cleared you for a visual, they might their attention might be uh, diverted elsewhere. Whereas you're an instrument hmm. approach, they're obliged to maintain, ensure you maintain separation. Yep. Okay. Interesting. We'll just agree to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, we just have different perspectives. That's all. And the, the kind of flying we're doing is different as well. Absolutely. And mom, mom yeah. for me is the word. All right. Okay. Let's uh, do the best part of the show, which, of course, is our weekly installment of The Old Pilot's Plane Tale. Here we go. The Old Pilot's Plane Tales. The Wave Scrapers. It's May 1942, and America has joined the Second World War, committing many of its combat resources to campaigns around the world. On the east coast of America, vital shipping bound for Allied ports, such as those in Britain, are being sunk by German submarines. The German U-boat commanders were bold, and they had started to operate even as close as a few hundred yards off the coast, where it was easier to locate the merchantmen before they became lost in the vast Atlantic Ocean. Tankers and cargo vessels were being sunk at a rate of two a day, but between Halifax and Florida there was 1,200 miles of coast for the Navy to patrol, and they were spread way too thin. Facing the efficient and deadly U-boats were five old Eagle boats, three ocean-going yachts, less than a dozen Coast Guard ships, a few blimps and a handful of aircraft. Any merchantman who got past Cape Hatteras afloat considered himself lucky. The losses had been so terrible that the figures were being withheld from the public, and for a few humiliating weeks... All coastal vessels were ordered to stay in harbour until convoys could be organised. Enemy agents rubbed shoulders with sailors in waterfront bars and the advice drummed into people of war-torn Britain that loose lips sink ships had yet to be taken fully on board in the States. 
The U-boat commanders had become brazenly impudent, and they sank a ship in the mouth of the Connecticut River and two more in the St. Lawrence. They crept into the lower Mississippi to threaten shipping, leaving New Orleans, and reserving their torpedoes for more difficult prey, they often surfaced and used their four-inch guns, which were more than a match for the lightly armed U.S. patrol boats. So confident were the U-boat crews that they surfaced in daylight to charge batteries and even hung out their washing while sunbathing on decks. There were, however, aircraft airborne, and some were armed. Johnny Haggins and Wyatt Farr were flying a Grummond Widgeon, and keeping a close eye on the surface of the ocean, their diligence was finally rewarded. They had been shadowing the dim underwater shape of a submerged U-boat for hours, when, at last, the submarine came up to periscope's depth. With a clear target, they ran in and dropped the two depth charges they carried, pulling up to avoid the plumes of water that shot up from the surface. They circled back around, but the only sign that they could find of the U-boat was debris and an oil slick on the surface, which seemed to show a kill. The remarkable thing about the mission that Haggins and Wyant were flying was that it wasn't a military mission, and... They were civilians, for they were members of the Civil Air Patrol. Let's go back a bit to the 18th of September 1892 and the arrival of Gil Rob Wilson into the world. Born to the Reverend Gil Irwin Wilson and his wife Amanda Robb, Gil Robb grew up motivated by youthful idealism and a deep sense of responsibility. When the First World War broke out, he travelled to France to assist in the war effort. Gill initially became an ambulance driver, but then became a member of the Lafayette Flying Corps, serving the French Escadrille 117, 66 and 163D squadrons. After the Great War, he returned home and followed his father's vocation, attending a seminary and becoming a pastor of the Presbyterian Church. It was after the tragic death of his wife and second child that he lost the use of his voice, and with his doctors advocating complete silence to hasten his recovery, he sadly left his work in the church behind him. The Presbyterian Church's loss was a gain, though, for the world of aviation, as Gill became the director of aeronautics for New Jersey, where, amongst other things... He oversaw the Board of Inquiry into the Hindenburg airship disaster, and in his new position he was able to promote and develop aviation in the United States. It was Gil Rob Wilson who first imagined the uses that the growing band of aviation enthusiasts could be put to, and it was he who saw that dream become a reality. He had taken note of Germany's reaction to the start of hostilities and the grounding of all their civil pilots, and he was worried that if America was drawn into the war, a similar thing might happen in the U.S. At the start of the war, there were more than 128,000 licensed private pilots in the States, flying around 25,000 light aircraft maintained by 14,000 mechanics, from around 2,500 airfields. 
By now the editor of Flying Magazine, Gill wrote that, if properly organized, private aviation could be a valuable national asset, relieving military pilots from some of the burdensome liaison, light transportation and reconnaissance work. With the enthusiastic backing of General Henry Arnold and the Civil Aeronautics Authority, New Jersey established a civil defense service, and following its success, other states followed suit. A previous mayor of New York, Fiorello LaGuardia, a former bomber pilot from the Great War and by then the director of the Office of Civil Defense, signed the order creating the Civil Air Patrol on the 1st of December 1941, only six days before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Gill was given only 90 days to prove that his ideas could be made into reality, but with the enthusiastic and financial support of the oil companies, whose valuable tankers lay burning along the coast, he set to. The idea of civil assistance had been growing in the background, and once news of the tides washing up charred corpses onto the oil-soaked beaches of America became public, and official backing was obtained, enthusiastic volunteers came forward, and the organization rapidly blossomed. Bases in Atlantic City, New Jersey, Rehoboth, Delaware, and West Palm Beach soon opened to cover the known hotspots of enemy shipping attacks, known as the graveyards, where sinkings were almost a daily occurrence. The call came for the best qualified civilian pilots in the country to come, and, with their own aircraft, come they did. They not only bought their own skills, but arrived with radios, spare parts, vehicles, anything that might help the budding organisation. Most early arrivals were Easterners, but the ones who came later were from up and down the country, from 45 different states. Amongst them were barnstormers, lawyers, bus drivers, manufacturers, mechanics, doctors and shoe clerks. Men like Tom Easterman, a wealthy Manhattan broker, shared assignments with Ben Berger, a Denver bakery truck driver. Many were women, who not only shared work as typists, radio operators and plotters, but were pilots as well. The call went out for airworthy aircraft of 90 horsepower or more to be put into action. Fairchilds, Beechcraft, Stinsons, Wackos and heavier aircraft arrived with the promise of hourly rates covering out-of-pocket expenses and appreciation. There was a concern that should the Civil Air Patrol crews be captured by the German military, they might be shot since they wouldn't be covered by the Geneva Convention. So the War and State Departments ensured that the organisation became known to foreign governments. The Army agreed to cover the flights under official orders and the letters US became part of the official emblem. There was a dearth of experience when it came to flying long patrols over water, but undaunted, Hugh Sharp set off on the first coastal patrol on March the 5th, 1942. We had never flown across anything wider than the Delaware River, and we were scared stiff, Sharp commented later. A few days later, the first flight out of Atlantic City set off, 
and Wyant Farr, a New York cardboard manufacturer, in a bright yellow Fairchild, with nothing but an inflated inner tube in the back should they ditch. Fifteen minutes out, they saw the floundering hulk of a torpedoed tanker, with a few surviving men waving weakly from the oil-stained waters below. Reporting the survivor's position, a Coast Guard cutter soon came speeding out. Only a few days later, the fledgling organisation found the enemy. Two aircraft out of Rehoboth surprised a U-boat, about to fire a torpedo into the side of a tanker near the shoals off Cape May. At first they thought the submarine was another ship floundering with its decks awash, but when they realised what it was, the unarmed aircraft dived down and buzzed the submarine. The U-boat commander crash-dived his vessel and it disappeared. The Civil Air Patrol was proving its worth. Initially they were limited to patrols and their only weapon was the aircraft's radio with its ability to call in support, but frequently armed military aircraft or surface ships arrived too late to attack. On one occasion the sight of a CAP patrol caused a submarine to dive onto a sandbar where it became stuck in plain sight. For more than half an hour, the aircraft circled the stranded U-boat, but before the bombers arrived, it had pulled itself free and had disappeared into deep water. After that, the orders came for the CAP aircraft to be fitted with bomb racks so that they might carry small bombs or even depth charges. So it was that Johnny Haggins and Wyant Farr, flying the CAP Grumman Widgeon, were able to attack their submarine. However, despite the evidence of oil and debris that they saw, sadly, subsequent German records show no U-boat was lost on that day. The coastal patrols stood down on August the 31st, 1943, by which time both the Navy's and the Army Air Force's anti-submarine forces had grown large enough to handle the mission. During the near 18-month period, CAP had flown 86,685 overwater sorties, spotted and reported 91 merchant vessels and 363 survivors in distress. They reported 173 U-boat positions and dropped 82 bombs on 57 of those subs. In the process, it sadly lost 90 aircraft and 26 crew members to accidents. After the war, 824 coastal patrol pilots and observers received air medals, and Edmund Edwards and Hugh Sharp were each awarded a second air medal with V Defence for Valour for their rescue of a CAP pilot who had ditched at sea. However, the deterrent value of the Civil Air Patrol was obvious, and their list of duties grew and grew. Now, with a formal rank structure and a uniform, members of the CAP were tasked with carrying cargo, conducting border patrols, towing targets for gunnery practice, searchlight tracking missions, carrying couriers, flying blood to hospitals, monitoring forest fires, conducting mock raids to test blackout procedures and air raid warnings. 
The organization also ensured that non-flyers could perform useful duties to help in the war effort. Their personnel guarded airfields, patrolled power lines and waterways, guarding against saboteurs. They also helped the Red Cross and others during natural disasters, flying in help and evacuating survivors. It also started a vital and long-lasting duty, indeed one of its most important missions, pilot training. As early as 1942, they were recruiting and training Civil Air Pilot Cadets to assist with the administration of the organisation and to be trained towards becoming fully-fledged licensed pilots. Within six months of starting, the CAP had over 20,000 cadets, many of whom would go on to become military pilots. On April 23, 1943, a presidential executive order transferred jurisdiction for the Civil Air Patrol from the Office of Civil Defence to the War Department, and CAP became an auxiliary of the Army Air Forces. However, at the conclusion of the war in 1946, Congress passed Public Law 476, incorporating CAP as a non-profit organization solely of a benevolent character. CAP members would never again participate in direct combat operations. After the U.S. Air Force was established as a separate service, in 1947, CAP and USAF officials started meeting to reevaluate their future relationship, and on May 26, 1948, Congress passed Public Law 557, establishing CAP as the official civilian auxiliary of the Air Force. Headquartered at Maxwell Air Force Base, the Civil Air Patrol today operates under USAF's Air Education and Training Command and units exist all across the United States. It currently has 33,500 senior members and 24,500 cadets and maintains a fleet of 560 light aircraft. In times of emergency, it can also draw from its members 4,300 privately owned aircraft. Although civilians in every legal sense, CAP members can wear modified USAF uniforms with their distinctive insignia. While many senior members, those aged over 21, are pilots, most are not. Anyone can volunteer for a supporting role with speciality training available in operations, communications, logistics and every other function required to run a flying organisation. The CAP also fields ground search and rescue and disaster relief teams that coordinate with federal, state and local responders. The Civil Air Patrol's three primary missions are emergency services, aerospace education and the cadet programs. Today the patrol flies 85% of all inland search and rescue missions under the operational control of the Air Force Rescue Coordination Center at Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida. Its members typically save the lives of 75 to 100 people a year. CAP also has formal operating agreements with many of the nation's leading disaster relief and humanitarian agencies, including the FAA, National Transport Safety Board, U.S. Coast Guard, Federal Emergency Management Agency, and the American Red Cross. 
Since 1986, CAP air crews have also flown counter-drug missions under the operational control of the Air Force and the U.S. Customs Service. The cadet membership is open to youths between the ages of 12 and 18, and many cadets go on to either the U.S. Air Force Academy or to senior ROTC in college. On May 30, 2014, Congress awarded the Congressional Gold Medal, its highest civilian honour, to the World War II members of the Civil Air Patrol. According to Public Law 113-108, the CAP's wartime service was highly unusual and extraordinary due to the unpaid civilian status of its members, the use of privately owned aircraft and personal funds by many of its members, the myriad humanitarian and national missions flown for the nation, and the fact that for 18 months, during a time of great need for the United States, the CAP flew combat-related missions in support of military operations off the Atlantic and Gulf of Mexico coasts. A fine achievement, I'm sure you'll agree. Fantastic, Nick. Oh, uh, thanks, Mel. Yeah, I was actually a part a part of it, so I was part of the air wing down in Noonan. Oh, brilliant! And I was involved with that. Brilliant. So uh, that, that kind of thing uh, worries me when I know very little about a subject, and I know that everyone else I'm speaking to, or at least certainly in the states, probably knows a lot about it. I kind of go, this is <laughs> a bit worrying. Yeah, you did a fantastic. Job. Yeah, it was, it was great. Brilliant. Thanks. And we have a lot of CAPers that uh, listen to our show, including Adam Reese in Houston. Are you guys still getting me? Or is uh-huh. the, uh, no, no. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Loud and clear. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because you, uh, you all are kind of getting a little fuzzy. So mm. maybe it's, well, I haven't had anything to drink, so it couldn't be that. Let's say uh, you had a couple of beers already? No, I didn't, actually. Um, I had several had yesterday, Robert, oh. Enabler. I had, a lot, I had a lot to drink right now. Did you? Okay. Yes, my soup was fantastic. Mm. Oh, good, good, good. Anyway, uh, Adam Reese uh, down in Houston, um, the Texas wing, and uh, he sent us feedback uh, a few times, and uh, I believe I got to meet you, Adam, right? Um, that meetup that we had in Houston uh, last year or the year before? Anyway. Brilliant. Good. And, and of course, program. there was John Jester who uh, suggested uh, doing uh, a plain tale about uh, the Civil Air Patrol. And uh, our um, lovely friend uh, Armando Canyon, uh, he started, I believe, as a cadet and uh, stayed with it, moved all the way up to squadron commander. So uh, he had a long time in it and uh, obviously benefited since he's now. Uh, Yousaf pilot and doing very well for himself as well as being a civil airline pilot. So, fantastic job, sir. Excellent and uh, a very a very good one. And you did a great job as you always do. So thank you, Nick, for that. Hey, thank you. Uh, let's see. I think that uh, we'll move on with some more feedback here. I believe we have about uh, fifteen minutes left in the show. And uh, we're going to go with item six. We have some more audio feedback. And this is Nick Knack Jack. Hey, APJ crew. This is Nick Knack Jack. And I wanted to um, 
give you some feedback regarding United 839 and their fuel emergency into Sydney. Um, I fly the Pacific in the simulator fairly often. And once you get south of Hawaii uh, on that particular route, you actually have a lot of options as far as um, alternate airports go. So um, I'm really curious as to why they wound up all the way up at Sydney with uh, minimum reserves, you would think. Uh, just looking at the map, um, you know, you have uh, Fiji, you have New Caledonia, you have a number of other airports in between um, the area south of Hawaii and uh, Sydney itself. So I'm really curious as to why uh, they would end up with uh, low reserves. I'm looking at a dispatch that I've done in my simulator um, with the 787 on that route. Uh, I'm showing a uh, release fuel of 192,788, uh, which gives me 16 hours and 28 minutes worth of fuel and 10% contingency plus an alternate of Canberra. Um, so I'm really curious about this. I wonder if uh, Dispatcher Mike might have some additional insight as to why uh, they might have ended up in this, in this situation. Uh, I'm thinking headwinds, but I don't know. Anyway, uh, I thought that was a really interesting story. Keep up the great podcast. And uh, I have got my own fuel situation to worry about as I fly my 747 to jolly old England. So anyway, uh, thanks for the great show. Uh, interesting story and take care. Thank you, Nick Knack Jack, for uh, that audio feedback and uh, he was referring to that United Dreamliner that uh, declared a mayday for emergency fuel. Uh, Ned also sent us in some feedback regarding this incident and our discussion of it. Um, He has a quote from where did he get this? Probably Um, from the FARs. Probably the um, ICAO Uh, Yeah, IKO or FARs or something. Okay. Um, Yes, it's uh, section 12.1 of whatever document this is from emergency fuel. The pilot in command shall declare a situation of fuel emergency by broadcasting mayday, mayday, mayday fuel. When the calculated usable fuel predicted to be available upon landing at the nearest airport where a safe landing can be made is less than the planned fixed fuel reserve. And as a result of the predicted of this predicted fuel state. The aircraft requires immediate assistance. In this case, there was a last-minute increase in traffic holding, some aircraft being delayed in excess of 40 minutes, which meant that the aircraft would land with less than statutory fuel reserves. At departure, the aircraft may not be able to carry the total of 30 minutes fixed reserve plus 10% of the total fuel burn, and as such, a recalculation of the required fuel is made at an intermediate en route point, as though the flight was actually departing from that point. This point at which this calculation occurs takes into account um, PNR and critical point. What's PNR? Uh, point of, point no, of no, return. no return. Yeah. And critical point. Captain Nick, you may like to explain these terms. Oh, there you go. Uh, this used to be called making fuel. And we call it at ACME uh, redispatch procedures, I mm. believe. And he said, I hope this is useful. Thanks for an entertaining and informative podcast. Wing Commander's weather to you all. And that means 
you never let the wing commander fly unless the weather is really, really good. (laughs) (laughs) Regards, Ned. Air traffic controller since 1974. And he's held a commercial private license. Commercial pilot license, yes. Pilot license, thank you. Since 1970. There you go. Excellent. I want to say, was it Dispatcher Mike that has addressed this on his Mm -hmm. uh, podcast before? If you're interested in that um, recalculation or uh, redispatch, let's call it ACME. Yep. Yeah, the most common method we use to make fuel is actually to have a second uh, nominated destination. So our primary destination is where we want to go, but um, some distance short, we have a secondary destination. And if we get to a decision point just short of that secondary destination, we predict we're unable to get to our primary destination without our normal company reserves, then uh, we can land at our closer destination. Uh, And it's just a, I don't want to use the word fudge because it's perfectly legal and within the the, um, authorized system. But it's just a way to arrive at your destination with uh, a lower level of legal reserve. And it's a common practice um, in these days of not wanting to carry around more fuel than you actually need. Excuse me, I'm starting to lose my voice. Perfectly legal fudge. (laughs) Okay, he's muted himself. All right. um, Thank you for adding your expertise to the conversation, Nick. While you recover your voice. Yeah, sorry. Yes, you're right. There are are several of these um, uh, perfectly legal ways uh, of making fuel. Of course, it doesn't mean that the commander doesn't have to adhere to them. If he sees a reason to carry extra, he will put it on. And I have done many times. And uh, to the absolute credit of my company, I have never, ever in all the years I've been flying with them, had a fuel decision I've made questioned by anybody. So from that point of view, I take my hat off to my company and say thank you very much, Steve, for letting me do my job without interference. Yes, we are blessed to work for companies that, um, you know, are conservative when it comes to that. And we never feel pressured to fly with levels of fuel that are unsafe. Yeah. What's your, um, what's your personal minimum, Jeff? When you my, look at the landing fuel in the airport, what's what do you feel comfortable with going with um, land? I look at several things. I look at what the minimum uh, reserve they have, and I, I go with that. And it's almost always accompanied by contingency fuel, both right. planned and unplanned. And so, when you take those two in consideration, it's well more than you know what they say for the minimum uh, or the reserve reserve fuel for us. So I don't actually have an, a, like a set number. It really depends on the situation. Yeah, I mean, I certainly won't ever go with less than about 6,500 pounds, landing with 6,500. That's the number I look at. Yeah. I look well, at the weather. I look at contingency, contingency. Let me say it properly. Contingency, and I, I take those things into, into consideration. Of course, then I think about the fact that I'm a high minimums captain and uh, look at the weather very closely 
And uh, I always want to carry a little extra fuel just in case. Yeah, I'm our, I always make a decision on the conservative side as well. I look at, uh, for instance, alternate fuel and then the minimum reserve fuel. And then I add those two together and I'll usually add at least a uh, thousand pounds or more as far as a bingo figure for my yep. personal. Yeah, I think most of us do that, actually. Um, and uh, speaking of fuel issues, uh, item number seven, this was an interesting one. He said, uh, this is from Chris, regarding the discussion on defueling a few episodes ago. An interesting thing happened in Sweden last week after an equipment change going out of my home airport. The aircraft should have been on a flight down to southern Europe, but was instead moved to a domestic flight to Stockholm and would have been too heavy to land on arrival. They did not do defueling, but rather uh, made an extra tour around the country. And then there's a link to the flight radar 24 flight path of this flight, which was Scandinavian Air Services, SAS flight 140. And they were leaving Gothenburg, Gothenburg, is that the way you pronounce that? Gothenburg, Gothenburg. Hello, somebody help me. Help. No clue. Uh, Gothenburg. Gothenburg. Uh, Gothenburg. Okay. You do pronounce the TH. Okay. Gothenburg uh, to Stockholm. And uh, via going almost due north up to, uh, we'll hear the pronunciation of this area, Ostersund. Ostersund, yes. Uh, to uh, Ostersund uh, to burn fuel. And so it goes way up to the north, way past Stockholm, and then back to the southeast, and then due south into Stockholm. The normal uh, average flight time on this flight is around 49 minutes and this particular flight was one hour and 29 minutes so about 40 minutes almost twice as long as the normal flight and it kind of perplexed air traffic control a little bit as uh Joan peter pete pater i don't why does it say chris at the top maybe i mislabeled this one anyway I think that's just a oh chris it, sent it in but yeah. this was the uh, post by joe and pete okay gotcha uh he says atc was a little baffled over this flight plan as heard on this uh audio file on liveatc.net departure scandinavian c2 julia 2000 climbing scandinavian c2 julia to the voyage radar contact time to find you at one five zero flight to one five zero scandinavian c2 julia and confirm you want to go via we are rather heavy, too heavy to land uh, with uh, this uh, fuel. Yeah. That's due to max landing weight. Okay. So, <laughs> there are two little Excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> Just thought I'd Didn't throw in a little bit of local Sweden. lingo there. That, oh, okay. This is my friend. He has the money. No, no two beers, please, oh. my friend. Will two beers. Sorry, I was, I was close. Yeah. <laughs> you know that phrase in every single language, yeah. don't you? If I'm ever in a foreign country with Nick and they start speaking a language I don't know, I'm hiding my wallet. <laughs> and I'm going to go well, you know, to get the away with order spears. In most Scandinavian countries, but I believe it's Swedish, but. I can't be sure about that. And I was taught it a long time ago, so my pronunciation is probably awful. My apologies mm -hmm. to the lovely <laughs> Swedish people. 
Oh, man. Uh, so anyway, an interesting way to resolve the problem of having too much fuel. Again, it was originally scheduled to fly to somewhere in southern Europe, but instead uh, was a much shorter flight. And maybe the availability of the equipment to defuel the airplane was a player here, or maybe they had to pay a lot of money to have somebody do that for them. So they decided, we'll just go and fly around until the aircraft is under its maximum landing weight. And uh, that worked, too. Well, we we were faced with a similar problem when we used to operate uh, from Gatwick to uh, somewhere in Nigeria called Port Harcourt. We weren't allowed to land before dawn. But we had to get airborne before the night jet ban at Gatwick. Uh, uh, and the flight time was sh- too short. So <laughs> we used to have to, um, sorry, too, yeah, too short. So we had to make, try and make the flight as long as possible so that we didn't land in the dark. And that was another case where you try and explain to every air trafficker that you didn't want any directs. And we'd trug along at our slowest practical speed, going the longest possible route, just so that we made sure we landed at the right time. By the way, uh, Carl is saying, say it again, Nick. So uh, just for Carl, to iltak min ven bitela. There you go, Carl. I hope Carl Carl, uh, understands that. Columbus, Mississippi. There you go. Where I've spent one, two, three, four, five years of my life Ah. in beautiful columbus by the sea it's not by the sea i was gonna say really yeah no okay by the um tennessee tom bigby rivers waterway system or whatever um we'll just do a quick one here and then we'll uh end the show and this one's from ivan four he said ivan marks writes in uh using the uh the uh apg app Hi, Captain Jeff. I was at Dobbins Air Force Base this weekend. That's uh, in Atlanta on the north side. Got very close to where uh, Dana lives. Got to walk into the cockpit of a C- old C-141. Yeah, they're all, all the C-141s that are still in existence are old. That's one impressive plane. Love the show. Thanks to you and the crew. And he has a he took a snapshot of the that old ancient airplane and... Uh, brings back a lot of memories for me so thank you for that and with that if you want to uh, learn more about the show get involved in the community and all that jazz hang on a head minute. over to airline hang on a minute jeff what's that big wheel for that's the steering tiller no the big one <laughs> nick is Which unfamiliar is with conventional <laughs> oh that uh, thing that uh, goes aircraft. between your leg that big old thing between your legs well, I don't know. It depends <laughs> He's where definitely not familiar with that. Depends whether you're going to put your legs to one side of it or not. But that's the sign of a manly airplane, right there. Oh, man. really? Oh, okay. Yeah. And what are all the red buttons for? Uh, for Eject. disconnecting things. Uh, <laughs> Eject, ejection seat. <laughs> so one ejects your first officer, and the other ejects you. Yeah, okay. I, got I that. have no idea what those things are for. It's been so long since I've flown that airplane. Come on, give me a break. I like the split trim switches. Very smart. Uh, that's the airplane that uh, Dana and I fly have the split trims. Uh, in fact, yes. every airplane I've flown has had that kind of arrangement. Yeah, same here. Excellent. Yeah. Now I just wanted to pull you up. That's a great looking uh, <laughs> wheel there to uh, 
turn. <laughs> well, you know what? Yolk? The uh, yeah, it's not a wheel. Come on, wheel. the wheels over there, off to the left. Yolk. Um, That's where you get in the middle of yes. an egg. Uh, really, we have to go there again. Yeah. <laughs> Why do we have to end the show like this? I, now, I wish that uh, it was my fault for for doing this. I should have known better. Um, Ivan, uh, you should have sent a, a, a photo of the the center console instrument um, cluster because there was a lot of uh, vertical tape. Uh, instruments and the Starlifter was one of the earliest uh, jets to use that technology uh, instead of the round dials that they had the vertical tapes uh, for a lot of the uh, engine and other parameters yeah anyway uh, thanks again Ivan and I uh, do apologize for uh, Captain Nick we're always apologizing <laughs> for Captain Nick. Um, and uh so if you want to learn more about the show and the community and all that stuff, head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com. Uh, get our free apps uh, for both uh, iOS and Android platforms. Uh, information about that on the website as well as in the show notes. And uh, on social media, we're there, right? We are, I think, still. So yeah. head on over to Twitter and confirm that for us. At uh, APG Crew is our handle. We're all there and we'll interact with you find our individual uh, Twitter information pinned to the top of that page. Also, you can head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy, interact with the community, um, ask the crew uh, or send, uh, I guess people have sent feedback there as well. It'll make it to us or to individual members of the crew, mostly manned by uh, Captain Nick and producer Liz. Absolutely. And we're also on Slack. Hello. Hello. Come on out. Okay. We're right there. Okay, here we go. Come on. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at Slack at airlinepilotguy.com that's S-L-A-C-K Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel and I'll send you an invitation that's Hillel spelled H-I-1-1-E-1 Hotel India 1-1 Echo 1 and see you in Slack Thank you, Hillel, and until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Hasta la vista, baby. Good day.